Artists Worldwide. Welcome, everybody. Uh, good morning over there in the uh, East Coast in the States. Uh, and once again, good afternoon or good early hey. evening here in the uh, UAE. We are extremely happy and proud, and I will share later on how proud I am to reconnect with this brother who has inspired me. And I'll go into detail later on how he, what, what he's done for me in my career and my life. But I want to start off with something uh, pretty profound, and I want him to respond after um, Marlon, our co-host, um, introduces him officially. And I'll start with this. Hey, teacher, I don't need you. You can't teach me if you don't know me. Historically, I need you to know that my story begins in Africa. I don't know where in Africa. I have no idea, but I know it starts in the African continent. That is a two line or two bar poem that our brother wrote and presented and has presented internationally all around the country and around the world. And it stuck with me and I'll get to my selfish uh, me in regards to how much I admire and adore this brother. But Marlon, please take it from there, man. So welcome everyone to another exciting episode of Quarantine Life, Global Brothers Podcast. It's the dandy which you hear as always, my man Big Heath. And as we said, very, very special episode. We said all the time, but we really, really, really mean it this time. No offense to any other guests, but uh, education is something that's so important uh, to the both of us. Uh, particularly um, the right kind of education, you know, educating the uh, you know, young black minds as well as, uh, as well as the open black minds that are a bit more further on but are open to listen and learn. So that's why we are all here for our good brother, Principal Kefele, who is a, uh, a well-endowed educational mind with a such a long career. I believe he started back in 1988 um, or before, you know, back in Brooklyn. So uh, we're so excited to have you uh, on the podcast and uh, looking forward to the conversation. So I know I can't do this uh, full, full justice with everything that you've done, all the books that you've written, that you've written all the awards that you've won, all the various accolades, the thousands of minds that you've changed from educators to students uh, and beyond, administrators as well. So we just want to bring you on and um, you know, welcome you to the show. And uh, yeah, welcome. Global Brother Podcast. Great to be here. I can't think of a better way to start this week than to be with, with, with you all and, and the folks here in this audience. So I'm excited. Thanks, man. Um, I want to start, you know, we, we, I started with that poem, uh, just, a, you know, of course, just a piece of it. It's a pretty lengthy poem, and I advise everybody to look up Principal Gafele's work and please find that poem because it's profound, it hits home, and uh, it's much needed for, for us to really think about and process. But, but what did you, uh, how'd you come up with that? I thought it yeah. was excellent. And, and you know, um, you, you guys can find that on uh, principalcafelewrites.com or you can go to my website, principalcafele.com and you'll see the, the link for Principal Cafele Writes. But you know what happened? I'm, I'm not a spoken word artist by, by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not a poet. 
I don't, I don't, I don't know how to write poems, but, but I was sitting in this very seat at this very desk and I, I just had that thought and I just started writing and writing and writing. And then my wife was sitting like right there. And I said, you know something? I read it to her. I said, I'm going to record this. And she said, don't. <laughs> Cause that's not, you know, that's, that's just not what I do. But I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. So I, I just went on the computer and started yelling a little bit in terms of what I was feeling with that particular piece. And um, we put it out there. And then, you know, so the, I guess I do have the audio online. Yeah. I got the audio online and the, um, and the written. So the YouTube uh, version is on the, uh, is, is the audio, the video. So yeah, it was just something I was feeling in that moment, but it's who I am. You know, it's, it's my essence. I think there are various different, different lines there, but it just reflects who I am as a man. It reflects who I am as an educator. And, and, and I became the educator that I was in the formal sense because of who I am as a man, right? So, so that was just an outgrowth of that. Put me in all sorts of trouble over the years, but that was, you know, that was okay. You know, working within a system and trying to be the authentic you. That's, that's, that, that's not always an easy thing when you're working within a system, which is probably why I'm not working in a system these days. But, but being my authentic me in a classroom with young people and authentic me being, being my black self oh. in a classroom with, with my historical understanding, with, 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 with the history that I've accumulated over the years. Matter of fact, I, I know I'm going like way in and, and you didn't even ask me this stuff yet, but let me- Keep let me, going, keep let me going, please, keep going. This, right? See, when I, was, um, when I was in undergrad school, recovering from a 10 year sleep, and, and I mean that literally, five, five years of high school, four different schools, a 1.5 GPA, a counselor that told me I'd never amount to anything, <clears throat> smoking a lot of marijuana, drinking a lot of malt liquor and beer, doing nothing for the five years after high school. So the, hence the 10 years sleep. I go to a school in Jersey called Kane University, not because I wanted to be there, but because I saw all my peers graduating from college. So I said, I, 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 I'm not doing anything. I'm, I'm 23 with the intellectual capacity of a 13 year old because I haven't grown at all intellectually. I've just gotten taller, but I'm the same guy. So I'm looking at my friends, you know, they got these degrees, they, they're buying cars, they, they're looking at homes and all that kind of thing. And I'm living in a two bedroom apartment with my mother off of her dime. She's paying my way to Zanzibar and Bentley's, right? So, so now I'm like, I, I, I gotta do something. I'll go to school, right? I said to my mom, I just need you to do one thing, pay the tuition. And, and, and I promise you, I'm going to excel. So the very first day I get there, y'all, I go to the library. Library is not my place, but I go to the library thinking I'll find some, some smart friends and I'll just, that'll, that'll be my new circle. So I get to the library. I, I decide, well, I'm not going to roll up on nobody. So on the other hand, let me just walk the aisles where the books are. So I'm walking up and down aisles, walk up and down aisles, walk up and down aisles, looking at books to my right and to my left saying, grab something. Left side of my brain saying, grab something. But the right side is saying, but you don't read. You ain't never read because I had never read a book in my life. Right. I knew how to read, but I never read a book from cover to cover. So now as I'm walking, there's a book that's partially protruding on the shelf. So I say, OK, since that's protruding, that must be my book. 
So I pull it off the shelf without knowing what it is. It was called To Kill a Black Man, mm -hmm. written by Louis Lomax, a book about the lives of Dr. King and Malcolm. Now, I could tell you about two sentences about Dr. King at that time, and I can give you one inaccurate um, sentence about Malcolm, right? I say inaccurate because I really didn't know the man, right? So now I sit there and I read that book. It's the first day of school. So over the course of three days, I finished this book. I'm a new guy. I am not the person that started on page. I went on and now I go and jump on the autobiography of Malcolm X. Then I just go up to Harlem, the Liberation Bookstore, and just take everything off her shelves. You know, Mozart, everything off her shelves. I'm buying every week. I'm up there. I'm catching an A train up to up to 125th, and I'm and I'm just buying everything on those shelves about Malcolm. Then I want to know what Malcolm knew, so now I'm buying everything in the store. So then I got this extensive library, but the translation was academically. I got a 4.0 all the way through because by doing all that reading, I'm introduced to the person in my mirror that I never knew beyond the name on the birth certificate. So now I'm realizing the shoulders I stand on. I'm realizing who I am. So, so quickly I decided to become a teacher. I wanna share this information, not thinking about this is not what a curriculum is all about, the, all this information I got. Like they're not talking about Chancellor Williams. They're not talking about Sheck Anthony Diop. They're not talking about George GM James, Dr. Ben, Dr. Clark, J.A. Rogers, and I can go on and on. But in my mind, that's what I'm going to Crown Heights PS221 to teach. That's, that's, that's what I'm thinking, because I'm naive at that point. So now I'm in the classroom. I get the job. Three, what was it? Three, two years later, I get the job, and that's what I'm in there teaching the fifth graders. So you, so you know, they came down on me, right? Like, yo, this is not what you're here for. I got, I got all the posters on the wall. They came in there and said, look, the principal said, I don't mind your posters, but your colleagues mind, right? So I got all this imagery. You, you, you name it, they up on my walls. They say, you got to take that down. I said, take it down. So here's my point. That's all. I didn't go to school to become a teacher. I, I, I went to school later. So all I knew was what I got from Liberation Bookstore. I didn't know anything else. I didn't have a foundation. All I knew was those books. So that's what I'm teaching. Right. So now I go back to school, get other degrees, go back home to Jersey because that's home. And now I, I, I finessed it. So I'm still that guy. Right. And it's still ruffling feathers. But I understand I also got to teach math. I got to teach science. I got to teach social. I got to teach language arts, etc. But in terms of what my students were doing. There was nobody that could compete with them kids, right? I mean, we're, 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 we're outscoring, we're outshining, we're outperforming everybody. And, and when everyone asks the question, and ultimately they give me the Teacher of the Year Award, Teacher of the Year for the school, the district, the county, and finalists for the state of New Jersey. So they're saying, well, like, what is, what is that you're doing? I say, it's very simple. While I'm teaching this lifeless document called a curriculum, because that's all it is, it's a lifeless document, as you all know, and, and it's that master teacher that, matter of fact, we'll, we'll pretend this is the curriculum. It's that master teacher that <laughs> breathes life into it. See, so see, 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 this, this is just a dead piece of paper. But that master teacher, they say, okay, 
You want to talk about George Washington? No, I'm sorry. Thomas Edison? Let me introduce you to Lewis Latimer. See, see, Lewis Latimer wasn't in there. It just said Thomas Edison. But that master teacher said, but it's a, it's a Lewis Latimer that we, 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 you and I have never seen a George, I mean, a, a Thomas Edison bowl. We've never seen one unless we went to a museum, the Thomas Edison Museum. We, 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 all we see when we look at bulbs are Lewis Latimer bulbs. That's all we ever see, but nobody told us. So I said, let me take these, these, these young, naive fifth graders and not tell them Edison and then say, oh, by the way, Latimer. Let me tell them Latimer and, oh, by the way, uh, Edison. See, see, let me flip it so that they see themselves winning. So now I, I go into the classroom and I'm, I'm, I'm that guy. I'm just my authentic self. So then when I become a principal, watch this, it's still all I know. See, I went to school, you know, I got the degrees, but those are not my foundation. See, my foundation is that, is that Afrocentric learning. So as a result, I'm still that guy going into them classrooms. So what's the first thing I do? I go to the superintendent as a brand new rookie, green, raw, naive principal and say to the, to the superintendent, hey, doc, curriculum is fine, I guess, but it's missing something. He said, what's that? I said, the students do not see themselves. I said, you saw me teach because I used to invite them over when I was trying to get the job. So I figured if I'm if I'm going to get hired, let me let the man come into my classroom and see what I do so that he would have incentive to make me a principal. So I used to invite him all the time. Come just walk, cold call me, walk into the classroom. So he saw that. I said, what you saw, I want to replicate that at the building level, but I got to introduce, I, I, I need curriculum that enables these children to see themselves. So he says, so what do you propose to do? I said, I want to build within the school an institute of African, of, of African studies. That's what we call it, Institute of African Studies. I said, I need, I said, here's the books I need. Malefi Asante from Temple, Dr. Asante wrote a, wrote, wrote the, wrote, wrote a textbook for middle and high school age students. I want to use that as a standard text. So he gave me the permission. And then I said, I want a course on ancient Kemet, Egypt. I said, I want to use Tony Browder's Nile Valley Contributions to Civilization. So now mm -hmm. I wrote the African-American history curriculum one and two. And then one of, my, one of my teachers, Hubert Chase, wrote the Nile Valley Contributions to Civilization curriculum. So now we got these two programs in place, college level programs for sixth, seventh, and eighth graders that I know nobody in America in a public school was doing. But this principal who was rooted in this, this is all he knew. So we go on and put this program forth. We bring in top scholars into lecture to them. Dr. Jeffries was a staple. Those of y'all from the New York area, Dr. Leonard Jeffries was a staple in my school, right? So he's in there lecturing. Then we're in the back in the classroom learning what we're learning. Test scores went through the roof. And we, and we weren't a test-based, test-oriented school where that was the thrust. But we said, if we can introduce young people to themselves, and you know, I'm in East Orange, so, so, so the whole school was black, right? So we said, if we can introduce them to themselves, the probability for them excelling increases exponentially. So at the core of what we did, 
was introduce young people to the person in their mirror and thereby transform their attitudes about themselves. Some of you may know I have a book called Closing the Attitude Gap, right? The gap between those students who have the will to achieve excellence and those who do not. So, so we're, we're not looking at skill, y'all. You go into a school, we're looking at how do we develop skill? How do we de develop skill? My premise is youngsters walking into that school, brilliant, but may not have the will for, for, for justifiable reasons to exhibit his or her greatness. So I said, let, let's introduce them to the fact that they are more than they ever conceptualized. And then the skill, that's going to take care of itself. Because now youngster knows who that is in the mirror. Right. I appreciate that. Um, I, I want to ask you, uh, do you remember me contacting you? No, I do. You do? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, it was uh, 10 years ago. We never met. You were speaking at the NAPSI conference in Fort Worth, Texas. And I was there and I heard you speak. At that point in my career, I had been a young you, <laughs> what you just described, yeah. struggling in a system, okay? I came out of the system and then started working for the system. All right. Same schools. I the same schools that I attended, I became an administrator at. And then I even went to be an administrator at my mother's alma mater. Same, same uh region or same school district. Anyway, I get to NAPSI, I hear you speak, mm -hmm. and you brought up your Power Mondays program with your uh young males and they're and they're, and they're basically a rites of passage program, mentoring program, shirts and ties, everything, right? Yeah. So I'm taking notes. And I probably, I knew, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how I can get this to my, my school. And I said, okay, I won't do it on Monday. I'll do it on Wednesdays. So I had a program called Power Wednesdays. So maybe, I mean, I literally took the idea that you, or the program that you had in East Orange. I appreciate it. So that. I uh, ran the program for an entire year. It's in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Yes, sir. We had... Tons and tons of uh, speakers come in. But how it started was I talked to about four guys in a hallway, and I told them about the idea. That was probably a Thursday or Friday. That next Wednesday, I had about 14 kids come in shirts and ties. I hadn't started the program yet. Wow. But they, they came ready to, 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 to get after it, to be mentored, to learn and grow. So I had to start the program when I wasn't ready. I had no funding. I had no money for it. I started coming out of my pocket buying pizza and just calling clergy and Pittsburgh Steelers and people in my network to come and speak to the kids. Mm. That lasted a year. After that year, I was in California. I got a call from my colleague. He said, when you come back to the school, whenever you come off vacation, the Heinz Endowments, Duquesne University, in Pittsburgh Public Schools just started a program called the Heinz Fellows from the program, a spinoff from the program you started. Wow. There's going to be 10 black men who are going to be in the school that you work at. You're going to mentor them. They're going to work with the kids. They're also going to go to Duquesne University and get their master's in teaching for free. And they'll be hired by the district. Outstanding. I saw you, bro. 
Yeah, that, I that's all you. That's, that's I all feel, you. I feel blessed by that. That's um, that's big time because you know that that program. You know, when, going back to what I said about the the Institute of African Studies, that was the other piece. You know, I went to you know October 16, nineteen ninety five is a huge day in my life. You know, it's like a it's like a birthday. And I know for some of you out there watching or some of or others who will see the recording later, it is for you as well, particularly if you if if you were old enough to be to be where I was on October 16, 1995. That was the first million man march. And I'm 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 just so blessed that I went, you know, that I that, that I had a principal that was willing to work with me. I said, I said, Doc, I, I have to be in DC. I was a I was a fifth grade teacher. I was working toward becoming um, an administrator at the time, but I said, Doc, I, I, I need to be down in D.C. She said, go ahead and do what you got to do. Go ahead. So we all jumped on the bus and got down there. But see, I took I took my pledge seriously. Right. And I know a lot of brothers did. But but I was so fired up to come back to Jersey because I took the pledge. I said, I'm, I'm going back and I'm going to take my game to another level. Right. So I get back to the school. But before I even before I even got to the school, I, I wrote my pledge on the bus. Right. And then I and then I, 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 I copy photocopied about 150 uh, sheets of it. And then I go to the principal. I said, Doc, uh, can you give me all the boys in this school this afternoon? And she said, well, what for? I said, because I want to replicate the Million Man March. I want to take them outside and, and just march and then have a rally with them. So I said, not the kindergarten first, second, but give me from third to fifth. And she said, go ahead. So I knew she'd say yes. I had already made those copies, right? So then we go outside and we had our rally. And, and, and at that point, I said, when I become a principal one day, because that was 1995, I didn't become a principal, assistant principal until set 90, January 98. And then I became a principal in 99. So I said, when I become a principal of the school, that along with the, with, with, with the, uh, the, African, the African Center Studies program, I said, that's going to be my core. I said, because why would I have this unrealistic expectation that the masses of my young men are going to automatically evolve into the men that we want them to be if they don't have somebody, a man, holding their hand to walk them through the journey, right? So I said, I, I want to I fill that void in their lives. You know, 80%, 85% of my young men were going home to fatherless households. So I said, I want to I fill that void with this program. So, so I started small over the years, and then when I, by the time I became a high school principal, I took it just to a, to another level because then we, we went through, I was in Newark at the time and we just tapped into pe people from Newark and the surrounding areas. And we said, we need you to be a part of our school. We need you to partner with us. I need you to come into my school and talk to my guys based on a framework that I developed of, of five strands. Let me give you these strands. They were, they were posed as reflective questions. Strand number one, what does it look like to be a man in relationship to himself. So in other words, his own professional growth, I'm sorry, his own personal growth and development into becoming a man. What does that entail? Like what, what are the steps I have to take? What do I have to do? What does goal setting look like, for example? What does having a sense of purpose look like, for example? What does mission oriented look like, for example? What does vision look like, uh, for example? And then just the, the, the detail of making that transition from being this young male into this young man. 
right? So we said, let's, let's spend four years talking about that on Mondays. We did Power Monday, dressed in, 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 in a shirt and tie, because a lot of people question me, well, why shirt and tie, though? And, and, and here, let me give you my very tra transparent answer. I wore a shirt and tie to school every day. I was, a, I was an old school principal, right? Very old school. So I wore a shirt and tie, slack shoes, and a belt. So because I dressed that way, as the principal of the building, as a, role, as a role model in the building, as the guy that all eyes were on me. I knew that because I positioned myself that way. I said, I want these young people to look like they are the principal of the building. And that was my rationale. I, I wanted to be, if you walk in that school and you see them, you, you don't know if, if one of them is the principal or me. You have no idea because they look just like me. Right. We, they're presenting themselves as the principal. They're conducting themselves as the principal. They're speaking as the principal. That's that's what we built. We said we're going to teach you oratory, meaning 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 you're going to be a master public speaker and we're going to teach you leadership. So 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 that was a part of what we did in terms of that personal growth and development. Number two, what's it look like to be a young man in relationship to the young women in the building? In other words. We knew what the lyrics were saying, and I knew it just as well as they did, because as an educator, I felt I was compelled to, it, it, despite being much older than them and looking at y'all much older than all of you, right? I'll be 60 on my next birthday in about three, four, about four months. So I say, but despite me being so much older than them, I need to be fully immersed in their music. Right now, at one point, I was immersed in hip hop music, but 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 that's that's going back into the the 80s and the 90s. So now here we are in the 2000s. I said I still got to be immersed in their music. I got to because I got to know the lyrics. I got to know the gossip. I got to know the culture. I got to know all that. So I'm listening to their music as if I was a, a fan of their music because I want to know what they hear. So now here here's one of the common threads was this gross denigration of women, particularly black women. I said, so I can't have you in my school. You graduate from my school. The rapper has defined the role of a woman in your life and you run with that. I, I, I gotta teach you who that woman is from an African-centered lens. So, so now that's what we did, right? Then this, so, and I'm not going into in depth with that. I just wanna give you the, the general. Strand number three, what does it look like to be a young man in relationship to the child he or she may have one day. We, I mean, he may have one day. We, we know that all of them not gonna have a child, but the majority of them probably will. Well, what does that look like? What if he's in a situation where he's, where he, he's just unfamiliar, has no clue as to the father-son relationship outside of seeing it from afar, seeing it on television, but not seeing it up close? What does he know about that? So we said, let's fill that void while they're in school learning math, science, language, arts, social studies, PE, and health, foreign language, et cetera. Let's, let's weave that in there too. Strand number four, what's it look like to be a young man in relationship to other young men? So in other words, I'm, you know, in, in any inner city school, it, particularly the high school level, chances are you're gang infested. I know I was, right? I had every gang set, every gang set north in my building. I said, okay, fine, they in here. Let's, let's show them, let's convince them that those colors that separate them will never compare to the color that binds them together, right? So, so, so let's accentuate your blackness, your brownness, right? Let's accentuate that so that you understand 
that this is not your destiny. This is a decision you made for now, but it can't define the rest of your life, right? And then strand number five, what does it look like to be a young man in relationship to his community? Are you an asset to your community or are you a liability to your community? And then, you know, so, so now we go on four years just having that, those conversations with my guest speakers that I was bringing in every Monday, right? So now, but, but beyond that, that's them kind of passively listening, passively engaging in conversation. I needed to empower them. So when you became a 12th grader or at the middle school level, level when you became an eighth grader, that meant you were in charge. You weren't just wearing a suit and tie to be wearing it. You were in charge. So let's say, for example, my seniors. That meant the incoming ninth grade, that was your responsibility. And I'm holding you accountable. So, so in terms of my leadership style, I would meet with my students literally every day, right? In person, in the morning convocation. That's just my style. Or if I was in a school where in terms of schedule, it, it just wasn't feasible, then we're, there'll be no school until you have heard my message. And I don't mean like me reciting some motto. I mean my, my, my sermon right? It, there'll be no school, no teaching and learning until you have heard from the leader. I mean, it's just, it's, you know, to use a sports analogy, you show me the team that goes into the locker room, puts on the uniform, and then, and, and then goes out on the field and plays. There's going to be an intervention there. Let me put you on mute like for a hot second. All right, my doorbell rang. I can't get it. So, so, so now there's going to be an intervention. And that intervention is the head coach will speak. The head coach got something to say. Although he or she has been in their, in their ear all year round, the head coach will speak. Right? So, so now once that person speaks, now we go out on the field and compete. That's post office. So now... Sorry about that. We, we live, right? So now I'm saying for me, it was the same thing. The head coach got to speak. How, how am I just sending my kids to compete without hearing from the leader? Hearing what's on my mind. Hearing my power. Hearing my inspiration. Hearing my information. Hearing my message, whatever the case may be. And, and as I, I had a, a student team around me all the time, like about anywhere from six to 10 students who were part of my morning announcements team, they, they could attest I worked up a sweat on that little three minute convent, uh, uh, message in the morning because I gave it everything I had. Because what I'm doing, I'm laying a foundation for, for the day. It, it doesn't even have to carry over into the next day. Just how, how, how am I going to take kids? who are coming from, in some cases, in many cases, home environments that are so overwhelming that if I ask the average teacher, put on that youngster's shoes, teacher, and walk in that youngster's shoes for a day so that you can really understand that youngster. I'm talking about that teacher that wouldn't last 10 minutes in that youngster's shoes, five minutes in that youngster's shoes, because that, that teacher is in all schools. Right. So so now I, I want to that youngster is coming into the building. I want to lay a foundation for that youngster that's, that may not be bringing hope. It says, OK, man, this principle has got me fired up. This principle's got me believing that I can I can soar with the best of them 
And then I got a whole army of staff to reinforce the message. See, mm -hmm. so that's 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 how we went about starting that off. But now I've empowered them kids. So now we're gonna take them seniors or eighth graders to the to the middle, like the seniors. I'm gonna take them to the middle schools. Yeah. Right? So so we're gonna go into the middle school and 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 I'm gonna sit there and just watch like a proud father and watch my young men empower these sixth seven and eighth graders based on what they got from us yeah. right or, or we'll go elementary but i'm also as i said before holding them accountable for the ninth graders so i'm gonna have them we're gonna come together in the gym and my seniors will speak to the ninth graders at the top of every month those eighth graders will speak to the sixth graders at the top of every month just reminding them of expectation of being students in this school these are students who could not have done this before i got there Right. But because we trained them, now they're in position, they my many principals. So now they can do, I've, I've empowered them, I've delegated to them, look, you're responsible for them. I got grade 10, 11. You got these freshmen. And then with my girls, my young ladies, we're doing the same thing. So you take everything I just said and replicate it, we're doing the same yeah. thing with them. Yeah. It's funny, I was, I was uh, you know, of course I, I did it for two years, but, or actually a year and a half, but um, the program is still going on. Um, I sent you an email because here it is 2020. I met you. I started the program in 2010. I met you in the, like in the uh, spring of 2010 and I started the program, uh, September, 2010. Yes, and, um, here it is 2020. And I just got an email saying call for more Heinz fellows. Wow. So once again, your power Mondays turn to my power Wednesdays. In, a, in, a, in another, you know, uh, state and city, and um, you know, it's it's been sustainable, uh, and it's been backed by the school district once again, Duquesne University, and uh, the Heinz Endowments, which is, of course, you know, they give a billion dollars away each year. So yeah, that's, that's like I said, that's all you. Um, I I uh, one of the things I want to tell you before we move on from this subject is you have. I can speak for myself, but probably many more educators. You have given us a license to do what we know we need to do, even in the system, okay? You actually unchained me. Now, once I got unchained, I went to Dubai because I couldn't do what you did in Orange, East Orange and no. in, in Pittsburgh. But um, I have been unapologetic since meeting you, and uh, you did a lot for me. Marlon, did you said you had something? Hi, everybody. I'm the co-host. <laughs> man, man, man. My mind is being blown over here. I'm loving it. Definitely enjoying it. As well, you guys might see me looking off the screen quite a bit, but because there's so many people coming into the room and I got to mute them right away. So uh, I'm kind of I'm kind of doing like several jobs here at the same time. Someone just came in again. Um, Principal Cabele, um, Great anecdotes there. I want to say you mentioned at the very beginning of it, wait and get this in. I don't think that you were naive. I think you were idealistic. Yeah. And um, I myself feel that way um, several times with what I'm doing right now, which is uh, being a social entrepreneur for, um, for some programs over in Africa um, you know, that I want to develop. And um, a lot of continental Africans, you know, our brothers and sisters, like they tell me like, you know, you don't know Africa, man. Like, you don't know how hard this is or you don't know about the corruption level or the this level or, you know, people are used to this and they're stuck in these systems. And I'm always like, well, 
I don't want to know. I just want to. I just want to believe what I believe. The goodness and the and the um, uh, the possibility of people. And like what you said there about responsibility, holding each other accountable. I think the same way that you think about changing inner city youth. I feel the same way about Africa. If we can hold each other responsible as both diaspora as well as continental Africans, like how can we be in a partnership together? We're here, like we are our brother's keeper. We are our sister's keeper. So that's what I was taking out of what you were saying as you were saying it, like, wow, this really applies to what I'm trying to accomplish. And this is so uh, motivational because you've had such a long career of doing it. Um, so, that's good stuff. Good stuff. For sure, for sure. And then I, then I had a question for you. Um, well, I have several questions for you, but I have a question for you to start it off. Um, <clears throat> The, 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 the poem that uh, Heath read to begin things with, um, you know, teacher, I don't need you. Wow, that was, that was, that was so, um, so uh, uh, powerful, just of a statement, you know, that I heard there. And uh, a lot of inner city youth, you know, even, even, even like suburb, you know, suburban black youth, like they like, you know, have that feeling of just what does this um, white teacher or non-black teacher know about my experience? How can they teach me something if they're not from where I'm from, don't look like who I look like, and aren't socialized how I've been socialized? So um, I had a question for you in terms of that uh, with, um, it does it, with your approach, does it start from where the children are from? Not just, not just inner city, but like where they're from from, like when we start to understand that a lot of uh, black Americans prior to like, great grandfather you know if you're lucky great great grandfather they're just not really like told and educated about africa at all yeah. so where does your approach really start to like show them the way yeah see I'm, I'm i'm a strong proponent that you know like like when i'm on the road doing my my full-time work of consulting and speaking i remind folks all the time to see my, my equity lens, you know, because this, this word equity became this big buzzword, right? So everybody's talking equity now. That's not a bad thing, but my equity lens is a little different than most um, in, in terms of the people I encounter, in terms of um, including some well-respected people. I've got a different equity lens because my, my equity lens as it relates to black children is, is, is a very African-centered lens, right? It's not just the, the generic equity meeting young people where they are and ensuring that everybody ultimately has equal access through an equitable approach. I'm still, I'm still looking at those black children, those brown children in terms of who they are in relative to race, ethnicity, and culture. So I tell folks, if you start these young people in terms of their history in enslavement, you are damaging these young people probably for the rest of their lives. You cannot start there, right? I, I, I understand your intentions and you're want, wanting to teach them their history, but you, 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 you're going to the lowest point in their history and you're using that as a base, as a foundation, them being oppressed. So, 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 so therefore, in this case, enslaved. So therefore, what is the difference between oppression then in 1619 and the oppression that we are suffering right now in 2020 they, 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 they're, they're seeing this as a natural condition and i don't i don't want them to see it that way so i gotta i gotta take them way back and show them when when, when show them their scientific brilliance 
mathematic brilliance, engineering architecture brilliance, medicine brilliance, and I can go on and on. I, I, I got to have them seeing that because I need them to internalize that. So now with the teacher, the teacher who, the, 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 the average teacher that's looking at me, unless they have some kind of base in history, some kind of foundation in history, then they're looking at me with three heads. Like, what are you talking about? Because that same lack of history that the children have is the same lack of history that the teacher has. So I can't teach you what I don't know. I can't teach you, I can't teach whom I don't know, right? So, so you got all that. Like, like it, when I was doing all that reading of Malcolm, as I was saying before, and then, and then that spawned to reading all that history, well, the, the book that said you're a teacher is the, is the miseducation of the Negro. By Dr. Carter G. Woodson in 1933. That's see, see, the other books gave me consciousness, but the book that said your role is in a classroom, right? And many, I'm sure that many of you you know this paragraph just as well as I do. He said right in the introduction, when you control a man's thinking, you do not have to worry about his actions. You do not have to tell him not to stand here or over yonder. He will find his quote unquote proper place and he will stay in it. You do not need to send him to the back door. He will go without being told. In fact, if there is no back door, he will cut one for his special benefit. His education makes it necessary. So reading that and then going on and reading the book, it just solidified for me that as long as a youngster is in a classroom, that, that in terms of history, it's devoid of teaching me who I am historically beyond enslavement, then my mind will probably be controlled for the rest of my life on earth, right? So we had to go way back in, 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 in Western Africa, Northeast Africa, Southern, I mean, just so many different places and work my way up to enslavement and thereby in a, in a totally different context, including with fifth graders. I, I remember having um, a colleague I, we, we, I was teaching fifth grade and we would departmentalize in east orange at the time so so i was only teaching social studies and one of my one of my colleagues was a language arts teacher and my kids i gave them copies of the miseducation of the negro now these fifth graders so i gave them copies they used to walk so, so when they would go from class to class they would walk around with their books proudly i mean they were proud hear me somebody they were proud of these books so when they went into the language arts class one day, the teacher happened to be white. And I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush because this is a lot of white teachers is this, this stepping up to the plate with this whole equity conversation, this cultural responsive, cultural relevance conversation, right? But this one was not one of them. So when she saw the books, she took one from a kid, looked at a few pages, stormed down to my classroom. I'll never forget this. Stormed to my classroom and said, what are you teaching these kids? Right. So so we got into this whole <laughs> brouhaha. Right. I won't even give you the detail. I'm going to put it in a book one day. So, <laughs> so so then so then so then that next day, a, one of my same youngsters, because they were loyal to me, comes to me with a book that, that she got from this teacher. And the title of the book was Robert E. Lee, my hero. Right. So I said, man. I lost it, y'all. I don't tell this story too much. I'm not, I'm not going to go into detail to it, though. That You find the book when I write it one day. 
but I lost it that day. I mean, I've never lost it to that extent personally or professionally in my entire life. But when that little girl, that fifth grader, came to me with a book that said, Robert E. Lee, the general of the Confederate Army, my hero. Oh, man. That whole city of East Orange knew I flipped out, right? So I'm saying that to say this. She was offended by the miseducation of the Negro because she it created cognitive dissonance, whatever page she must have read, but she didn't have that prior, prior background understanding to understand its significance. In fact, she didn't even know who Carter G. Woodson was in his contribution to America, right, and to the world. But in her mind, Robert E. Lee was someone to be respected. If, if, if that's what young people are being subjected to, right, then, then it's no wonder those that never come out of that shell where their minds are under the grip of, an, of, of, of external society, right? So for me, I had to make sure that as their teacher, I'm taking them back. I'll work my way to oppression, but I'm taking them back and making them understand what that is that flows through their veins that they're not recognizing. So youngsters sitting in a classroom, uh, I don't like math. I'm intimidated by math. I can't do well in math. A, a, a young man, do you realize you created that math though? See, he, right. he, 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 did, he don't know that. Do you realize that math is flowing with your blood? He don't know that. So I got to give it to him. See, so that's part of some of the work that I do just in terms of empowering teachers to give them, uh, or I should say educators, because it's, it's all the way up to superintendents, information toward empowering their young people to have the will to maximize their own potential. When, when did you hit your peak in regards to, uh, I'm not even sure if it's called a peak, I wanna call it a peak, but basically, when did you hit a threshold where you can reach people better? Was it your communication? Was it um, just the fact that you were just a, an OG in the game? Like, because in my early 30s, actually all of my 30s, it was hell, man. Yeah. Everything you described was hell. And I had to keep moving school districts, once again, just to remain my authentic self. Yeah. But when did it become easier to get through to the system did this matter? I love that question. Hear, hear me, somebody out there. I had to make sure, like I'm, I'm one, I'm, I'm an advocate of, of, of staying in one's lane. Let me say that first. Like, like I, don't, I don't move outside of my lane. When people ask me to speak on a variety of different things, and I don't say yes to everything, it's got to be in my lane. Because if it's outside of my lane, I can't bring passion to it. I can talk about it, but I can't bring energy, right? So I'm not having fun. So, so, so as much as we all want to make money, it's got to be here, right? But now with that, let me, let me slightly contradict it. Um, when I knew, like, like see, I, I wanted to be, a because of my love of Malcolm, I wanted to be a public speaker before I wanted to be a teacher. So I didn't, I, I, I didn't want to be Malcolm. I just knew I wanted to be, I, I wanted to speak. So... But at that time, we're talking like 1985, 86. I had no story. I had nothing to tell. I just, I just love Malcolm, right? So 
I, so when I figured out I want to teach with the miseducation of Negro, I said, okay, let me go ahead and, and be this teacher. And then I said, I want to be the best teacher I can possibly be. So I really, you know, I wish on another, another time, I, I, I just want to talk to you all about how I would go in on my preparation. See, this before I knew how MJ, Michael Jordan, before I knew how he was preparing, before I knew how Kobe was preparing, I was that guy too, right? I was a beast in my preparation. Right. Forget about what I did in the classroom with kids, my preparation in front of mirrors, my preparation in, in writing up fictitious lesson plans. You know, all, all this just just that prep because I wanted to be phenomenal as a teacher, because I said, if I'm phenomenal to te as a teacher, that means my students are with me. Or what's the basis of me seeing myself as phenomenal if, if, if I'm if the ego saying you good, but the students are fail. Right. So I said, if, if I'm operating up here, that means my kids are up here with me. So, so here's the thing that in terms of the answer to the question, I'm doing, I'm from, from 1987 until 2004, I'm speaking in cafeterias pretty much every night. I'm doing PTA meetings. It's like one parent there. It's like another night is two. Oh, it's a good night. Five showed up. Right. So, so whatever it is, I'm like, I'm giving them these, I'm doing these speeches and I'm giving my all to them as if I got 10,000 in the audience. So I'm building my, I'm, I'm developing that craft along with my teaching craft. I'm developing this speaker craft. So now I become a principal, but I'm still doing the same thing because I had this dream before being a principal that I want to be this speaker. And I'm figuring out, I want to speak about education, right? So now my audiences are getting a little bit bigger in my early days of my principalship, right? My name is getting a little bit more recognition. So now, uh, br uh, Brother Bailey, I get to a point where I said, okay, I'm going to be rebel me because I had built something else. And when the stuff hits the fan, I can go to this other thing I've been building simultaneously called speaking. Right. So now I would enter the school fearless every day. And my wife could hear me and she could tell you that I'm entering the school fearless because I know I got my plan B in the cut. See, so, so, I'm, so I'm in there just doing what I do. And the day you decide you want to terminate me, I'm good because I got this other thing now that I've developed. I can go out and I can speak to groups. I can, I can train. I can inform. I can inspire. I can empower because I've spent 20 years building that thing, right, crawling on my knees to get to a certain point. So that, at, at that juncture, and I, and I can give you a year. 2004 was the year I said, look, I got this thing. I'm just going to go in here and be me, right? If I don't, I don't know. No, you up in Pittsburgh, so you wouldn't know. You wouldn't have known when I was going through a little war down in this area and was on all the radio stations and all the television news stations because I was dealing with this war I was dealing with. But I won the war. But at that point, I said, and that's going to be in that same book. <laughs> but, but, but at that point, I said, man. I, I, I could do this thing. So I was ready to do it. Watch this in 2005, right? I said, I'm going out on the road and I'm going to build a career as a, as an independent self-employed consultant speaker, right? 2005. I'm, I'm, I'm out. Cause, because, because the stuff you were talking about, I, I got to a point in my life. I can't, I don't know. I could deal with it. I don't want to deal with it. Right. I don't want to deal with the stuff that comes along being a black administrator. Right, I, Bro, I, I, don't want, I don't. 
I, see, I said to myself, I don't want this anymore. I'm done with this. So in 2005, see ya. So then what happened was the school in, down in North, North Tech, they started recruiting, right? They're like, yo, because the, the whole world knew what I was dealing with because it, it was in the news media. It was, it was the lead story. So come on down to North. Nah, I'm done with this. I'm getting, ready, I'm getting ready to do my public speaking thing. They kept calling. So then finally, they, they called my secretary. I said to my secretary, look, tell them I, I'm not interested, right? So then they kept calling. Finally, I said, okay, I'm gonna come down and have the interview. So I went down there. Guys were telling me about the program. We need you at North Tech. I said, I said, let me tell you something, sir. I don't want this job. See, I got leverage. I said, I don't, I don't, I don't want this job because I'm, I'm pumped about starting my public speaking career. I don't want this job, sir. But, but, but since you see something in me, let, let me just say this to you. It's either I'm going to lead the school or you're going to lead the school. If you're going to lead the school through micromanagement, this is me in an interview. I'm quoting myself. If you're going to lead the school through micromanagement, I'm not your guy. I know how to lead a school. I know how to turn around a school. I know how to make a school a high-performing school. But you got to let me lead it, right? Hey, real quick, real quick. That's how I interview now. <laughs> that's, that's it. That's it. So, so, he, so he said, I got you. So now we took that school and, and, and test scores in the basement. Four years later, U.S. News and World Report said we one of America's best high schools. Right? So, so, but they let me lead it. So in the meantime, I still know I got this other thing that I want to do. Because it's, I'm loving it. I stayed in the school for six years where I only planned to be there for one year, but I fell in love with them kids. I fell in love with my staff. I said, I ain't going nowhere. And then six years later, I still had this passion. I said, man, I, I, I want to know what life feels like when you don't have a boss, right? Because I, I, you know, many of us will never learn that. We don't know that. I said, I need to experience life where I call the shots, right? So in other words, when I'm doing assemblies with young people, I say to them, I, like, 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 there's all these different definitions of success. I'm, I created my own. I've created a lot of definitions, actually. But here's, here, in terms of success, I said success is the ability to live one's own life on one's own terms, period. As a principal, as much as I loved it, as a teacher, as much as I loved it, I still wasn't living it on my terms solely. I said in the back of my mind, I just want to know what that feels like. Like, like, what's it feel like to wake up in the morning and you answer to nobody but your God, right? What's it, what's it like to wake up in the morning and you determine the days you work? You determine the salary you're going to make. You determine when the vacation will be. You determine, like, like everything about life, you make that decision. I said, I have to experience that. So, so, so God gave me this ability to articulate my thoughts. So I said, okay, so the public speaking is where I'm going, right? So, and that's what I've been doing full-time since 2011. Yeah, I've been, I've, been, I've been living my life on my terms. I write a book every year to keep myself relevant. Um, I, I do a whole lot of speaking. I do a whole lot of YouTubing and a whole lot of social media and all that kind of stuff. Because that's, that's what keeps me fresh, right? Because there's a lot of young cats, y'all, a lot of young women out here on the come up. I'm, I, like I said, I'll be 16 in, in less than a half of a year. I said, so I got to stay relevant out here with a whole new audience of folks that are in the world that may not know that Principal Kefele exists. Everyone in this room, which is now 38 people 
all know that you exist and we're definitely going to exponentially <laughs> exponentially tell these tales of what we heard today um what i've uh, what i've been taking as well like i'm actively uh actively listening taking notes um kind of kind of hyping up the room as well like you know your hype man over here you don't even know it. um <laughs> representation is important I'm hearing, I'm hearing that over and over again, what you're saying. Representation is important for people to see someone that looks like them and leads by example and does what he says and says what he does. Um, something else that I'm getting um, is know your worth. Know your worth and add tax. You know, like Brother Heath said, uh, that's how he interviews now. And you're like, yo, I was taking a big chance when you were doing that back then, telling people like, look, I don't need your job. Yeah, so... A lot of us um, might not have that 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 kind of confidence yet, or even if we have that confidence and feel and feel that we have something to offer, we're not ready to step out on a limb. Yeah. Um, so that that that's that's very interesting that you're able to uh, have that character from back then. My question to you, uh, maybe this has something to do with it, uh, because I heard I heard one of your um, uh, 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 throwback speeches, as you called it um from 1988 i believe uh where you said that you changed your name yeah um, can you tell us a little bit about that story like you know you changed your name and what that means to you back then as well as now yeah and and, and you know it's funny i never i never imposed that on people to say you know you need to consider that was that was personal with me my name you know i got on the screen principal because i got my brand name up there in terms of my my, my public work but in terms of the man baruti kafele when, you know, doing all that reading I was doing and, and all that discovery that accompanied it, I said, man, I, I just, you know, this is this personal. I said, I, I can't, I can't embrace my name anymore. You know, that was, it was, it was, it was the weirdest thing. And it happened quick because my reading started in 84. So by 85, you know, we're not talking about like 10 years of reading and now I have this epiphany. 85, I'm like, I can't embrace this name that has been my name since birth. So I, I got all these name books, these African name books, and I said, I got to find me a name that speaks to me. So over, I guess that year, and I had by then read The Miseducation of the Negro, I said, man, um, this word Baruti is really standing out amongst these thousands of names because Baruti means teacher right so it comes from botswana language is called tiswana and so from that point on anybody i met knew i introduced myself as baruti right so 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 now and, and my mother started calling me baruti immediately right so and my father so now that was that that was my name in terms of just something i adopted nothing legal so then I said, I need a last name too. So I'm looking again, I'm looking again, I'm looking again, and I find something, kafele. And, and the, 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 the literal definition is worth dying for. It comes from Malawi, language is called Ingoni. But I said, let me, let me get at a slight spin relative to Baruti to tie the two together. I said, kafele means the struggle for the liberation of the minds of our children is worth dying for, right? So I said, that's my name, Baruti Kafele. So I said, now let me find a middle name. And I found this name Kwame from Ghana. Language is Akan, which means born on Saturday. I said, that's my name. So then now for the next seven years, 
I'm Baruti Kwame Kafele, but it's not my legal name. So now in 1991, I write my first book, A Black Parent's Handbook to Educating Your Children. And I got to put a name on the cover. I said, okay, I, I want to put my new name on this cover. So I went and got it legally changed in 1991 so that I could legally put this new name on the cover. And I've been that name ever since. So that was, you know, that was, that was the genesis. And again, it's perfect. I don't go around saying, no, you need to change. No, that's, you know, cause every, every, everybody does, everybody's not going to approach it that way. But for me, it was a must. I always say it's one of the best decisions that I've made in my life to, to wear this name. You know, it's, it's interesting. There's a lot of people in the, in the, in the, in the consulting world, in terms of my the work I do there, they, they, they know Principal Kafele because I distinguish myself from my son, who's also Baruti Kafele, and I go by Principal. And also, it's just you know part of my brand in terms of what I do. But yeah, that's 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 what it is. That's amazing, and uh, you know we we uh, we we think back to uh, people like Malcolm X. You know, obviously, um, uh, Malcolm Little. You know, he, cha- he changed I changed name to the X in terms of the unknown. You know, yeah. like, like not knowing, you know, like his his uh his uh, background where it all came from. Um, uh, uh, Heath uh, Heath back in December went to uh, went to Ghana for the uh, year of return, and um, uh, Heath, tell us a little bit about that naming ceremony, because uh, my because my cause my Ghanaian name as well as Kwame born on Saturday. Mm, okay, you, you would you would put me on the spot because uh, I was born on a Tuesday. name, right? I was born on a Tuesday, and I forget my name. I could probably look it up real quick. Uh, I'll, I'll do it later on in the show. But um, unbelievable uh, the tradition, and it goes back, of course, thousands of years. Yeah. Um, my eyes were open. I'll probably uh, end up in Ghana. That's the place that uh, that I'll probably be. Um, I'm looking. I'm looking at residing there. In the latter part of my life, which I'm close to that now, so um, uh, I was enamored with Cape Coast. Uh, you know, of course, the capital city, but Crawl's beautiful. But um, when you said you changed your name, I mean that I'm sure that freed you. That freed yeah. you from. Absolutely. You just probably pulled off layers. Yeah, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, I could talk about uh, Ghana, but that's that, that's for another episode. As a matter of fact, we did a um, a year of return episode on Global Brothers podcast. So that, that episode's on Spotify, YouTube, of course. You check it and, out. Uh, yeah, check it out. Um, okay. It was just basically my experience there. There's a lady uh, from the Bronx, New York. She's been in Ghana for 33 years. Mm-hmm. She got her citizenship in 2009. And she was given 400 acres of land in Cape Coast, right on the slave, right on the ocean. Wow. Right there, right, right where the transatlantic slave trade was. 400 acres, she was given free by the government. And when I ate at her resort, she owns a resort up there called the One Africa Health and Beauty Spa and Resort, something like that. And um, it's an herbalist place where you just go get clean and just, you know, uh, mentally and physically and spiritually. Anyway, I ate there with, with the group I was with and she gave a presentation of how she got there and what she's been doing and you know how she got uh, her um, citizenship. And then she said, I have 400 acres, I'm 70 something years old and I'm giving these acres away free. Hmm. And the light bulb went off yeah. because her crew of women were some 70 plus year old 
Maya Angelou's and Tina Turner's. I mean, these women look like they were 35. Mm. And that was her crew. She had about five women that she was there with, and they were just glowing. And I looked and I saw my mother. I said, you know, my mother's 70. I said, I think this is where I'm going to be. I'm going to bring my mother here, and this is where I'm going to be. So um, that's, that's in the works with me. And, wow. of course, I'll learn my, my name when I get there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's 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 good stuff. Good stuff. You know, I was I, uh, I didn't realize there was so much in this chat box, man. I'm uh, we're deep. Uh, yeah, yeah. Look in, there, look in look in there, brother. Um, uh, we have another one for you. Um, in terms of uh, and I, not that anything that we have said has not been as deep as this, but um, a lot of my uh, friends that are teachers uh, in you know that are teachers, particularly of black boys, um they consistently talk about this and I never knew that it was like a, a term, you know, because I'm not professionally in education. Which, but, which term? Yeah. Um, a school to prison pipeline. Oh, school to prison. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Speak on that. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's real. Um, you think about, you think about the percentage of young people who are first in, in, incarcerated when, when they're in school and, and, and you think about like, it's, there's so much there. Let's, 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 let's go to special needs, just as an example. You think about the volume of black boys who wind up in a special needs learning environment, right? Um, my oldest son, the only reason he's, he, he never wound up in that environment, and, 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 and I'll say this about my son, he, he, you know, he hears me say it as well. My, my oldest son is, is like super brilliant, right? He's, 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 he'll be 30 in a few days. He, he's so brilliant. I can't keep up with him intellectually. Like if, if, if we talk education then we good, but anything outside of that, his knowledge is so vast, right? He is, you know, he's a very quick study. You know, he read it, he's got it. He retains it. He writes these articles, these blog posts. And I usually have to get on them. I say, look, the only persons who can understand what you just write, wrote is you and other scholars who think like you. But us lay people, I don't know what you, I don't I don't know what you're writing, man. You got to write this for the lay person. So I'm saying I'm, so I'm giving you some context now. So he's in elementary and they on my, me and my wife about evaluation. Right. Because they don't understand this young black intellectual in the making, right? So, so, and it's a whole lot of young Baroudis in classrooms right now. So because of, of cultural difference, implicit, unconscious, or explicit, explicit bias, right? And we could go on and on. You got all these black boys with their brilliant selves sitting in some low track classroom or sitting in some special needs environment when they are valedictorian material, right? So, so now here I'm, in, 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 I'm placed in an environment that I don't belong because I got a teacher that doesn't understand me, doesn't appreciate me, can't relate to me, and, 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 and not only to me, but to the environment that produced me, right? So now, here, this youngster now is on that fast track to prison because I've been, I've been misplaced when I was a baby, you know, fourth grade, fifth grade, whatever the case may be, as opposed to being in an environment that is truly culturally responsive to the youngsters. So, so therefore, there's, there's intense professional development in that environment 
to ensure that regardless of who the teacher is, because you can have a black teacher and black student and still culturally miss one another, right? Because, because it's not a monolithic culture. So, so, so now we're talking about intense professional development that we, get our, that, that we get our staff to the point where we are culturally responsive and thereby culturally competent. Like the author of this book here, I was interacting with on email yesterday because I told her I've been promoting this on a few of my platform, Cultural Competence Now mm -hmm. by Dr. Vernita Mayfield. I love this book, right? It's um, and this, 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 this uh, professor or consultant professor out of California, but, it, but it's, it, it walks, it's not just theory. It walks a teacher through becoming culturally competent, right? So that training in cultural competency, cultural responsiveness, the big one, cultural relevance, right? So the, so the youngster sees self on the page. If, if, if I don't see me, like, 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 like I say to my audiences all the time, I'm going to say to you guys, you sitting here, and you listening to me. But if my words are not relevant to your world, you don't hear me, mm -hmm. right? You, it's, it's like I'm just talking to the wind. But if on the other hand, my words are relevant to your world, that, 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 that this brother is saying things that relate to what I deal with every day, then you hear me. So now I'm, I'm in your space, so to speak. So now think about that youngster in the classroom and, and, and you're in that English class or language arts, you're in that math class, you're in that history, whatever it is, but you don't see self coming alive on the page, coming alive through the lesson. And therefore I, I, I zone out, I clock out because I don't see what this has to do with my world. I don't see what this has to do with my future. I don't see what this has to do with anything about who I am. So now this youngster could wind up very quickly in a special needs environment, some affected ki uh, uh, effective kids environment, um, some, 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 some environment that is not the environment of the kids in the, in the gifted and talented program, the honors program, the AP program, because we have misidentified, mislabeled this kid because of our ignorance in terms of making that connection with that youngster, right? So I'm saying all that to say, to use as an example, because I can give you a lot of examples, but, but as an example of how a youngster is now placed on that school to prison pipeline or within that school to prison pipeline, because I'm, I, because I'm forced to exist in an environment that I don't even see how it relates to me, which, 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 which puts me in a situation where I can get into all sorts of trouble, right? Because there's nothing about this school environment that's a magnet that's drawing me in that I'm excited about being here every day. See, I say to teachers every day, I say to, say to, say to my, my, my colleagues on the screen today, ultimately, youngster has to be excited about being in that space. That, that, that has to matter. And I always say, still connected to that question, there, there are these four components that are just vital for that classroom teacher even, and, and even the leadership. I call them my four intentionalities. Number one, the intentionality of what students see just just what's on the space and to what extent is what they see an extension of you right so 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 the imagery the photographs of them like like maybe some action shots of them working or the portraits the work samples the the wall that has their their awards 
the other wall that has their goals and strategies. So, so, so this class and, and all the other creativity that a teacher can come up with, this classroom where all four walls are all about the students, the intentionality of what they see, the quotes, the motivational quotes that you either got from someone else or you created yourself. I never use celebrity quotes. I, I created my own quote. I got about a thousand quotes I've created over the years and I just use my own, right? So, so just all this stuff and material in terms of what student sees that when student walks into the classroom, student knows immediately, this is my space. This is my room because there's me, there's me, there's me, there's me. There's all this stuff that, that, that's about me, right? So then number, that's number one. Number two, the intentionality of, no, let me finish. No, one more thing about C. C is not just the external. C is also you. What do they see in you? See, see so therefore for me, I had to bring the best, I had to bring my best me every day because I knew that all eyes were on me. Right. So, so the way I spoke, my temperament, my, my posture, my expression, right. All that mattered because they saw it. Right. So I want to make that connection. If, if, if they walk into my room and I'm like, All right, what's up, yo? go on inside. And they, it, I mean, that's, that's the tone. Hey, that's the tone I'm setting. I don't want to set that tone. So what they see in me matters as well. Number two, the intentionality of what they hear. Oh, man. What are you saying to them? I, I know that everybody on this screen, you got somebody, if, 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 assuming that everybody on here is an educator, you, you have somebody that goes home every day that has never, ever in their life been affirmed, that, that have never heard that you are somebody special, that you are extraordinary, that you are phenomenal, that, that, that you are somebody that's going to achieve great things in your life, that I will never quit on you, that I will never give up on you because you are amazing. There are children that all of you have that have never heard that at home. And that's not, for, that's not me blaming their parent because their parent may not realize the power in those words. But, I, but I'm telling you that that student exists probably with everyone on this, on this call this morning. But imagine that same student walks into a classroom and the same thing happens that I don't hear it at home, nor do I hear it in school from, cause, cause, cause you all, you know this, it's just a kid from Jersey reinforcing it. You represent some of the most significant people that your students will ever, ever, ever meet in life. You, right? Not, not some celebrity somewhere, right? Not some superstar in sports and entertainment. You. They'll be talking about you. If, if you're doing, if, if you if you at the top of your game and you are defending your championship, because see, you know how people, they, they say, teach like a champion right? And, or, or be a champion for children. But here's the part they miss. Yeah, be a champion. But when you win a championship in any sport, that's for that moment. What's the next step? You have to defend your championship, right? And see, that's, that's the part we miss. We'll say, I'm a champion, but you ain't champion for life. You have to now defend it. And when does the defense of the championship begin? Tomorrow right? The next day, because you were a champion, say on, on today, whatever today's date is, May 26th, but that doesn't translate into you champion on May 27. Right. You got to defend that, right? In terms of your actions. So the intentionality of what they hear, you got to be, you, 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 in defending your championship, 
you got to be saying the right stuff to them, man. They got to they, they gotta feel you so that, so that they can take you with them in the next grade, the next grade, the next school, the next level. So now that youngster you had at 12 years old is still raving about you at 52 years old because that youngster understands that my foundation was when I had that special teacher that year that told me I was amazing when everybody else told me I was a loser. See, number hey. three. Go ahead. Let no, me, go ahead. Go ahead. Two more. I'm going to give the short version. The intentionality of what they feel. We're talking about their emotions. Can I walk into your classroom and I don't have to worry about anything? I can be my authentic self. If, if, if I don't have to worry about someone laughing at my hair texture. I don't have to worry about someone laughing at my sneakers. I don't have to worry about somebody laughing at my clothes. I don't have to worry about someone laughing at, at my facial characteristics, at my height, at my weight. I can just, the way I speak, I can just be me. Hey, teacher, are your antennas like way up that you're able to gauge? how every youngster feels when they're in that space. Because I promise you, maybe not in your classroom, but in your school, there's a youngster in there that seems happy, but, but, quite, fr but, but quite frankly, the worst part of his or her day is in your classroom. Not because of you, but because there's some peer that makes that youngster feel miserable. So the intentionality of how they feel, that means that you and I got the antennas up being able to gauge how they feel, but we're getting way ahead of it by creating a space where youngster can be emotionally free, safe, and secure in that environment every day. Last one, the intentionality of the experience. Man, that's the bigger picture, macro. It says, what is the overall experience of being in this classroom? I, I, one might say, I could say, what is the overall experience of being on this call today? Like, like, like one might reflect later on after we're done, was it worth my while to be on here with Kefele for the hour? Whatever time, how much time it is, was, was, did he create an experience as the speaker that was worth my while? That I could take something he said and apply it like immediately? Or did this dude put me to sleep? See, so, so now you take that and you transfer it to the classroom. What was it about the experience? Like you go to a concert, a sporting event, a show, and, and, the, and not just to see what's happening on the stage, but the overall, the experience, was it something that was magical? Was it something that was memorable? Is it something that's gonna stay with you for, for, for a long period of time? That's how you and I have to approach that classroom. Are we creating magic? Are we magicians every day? Are we creating memories? Are we creating miracles? in that classroom every day. The intentionality, again, of what they, what they see, what they hear, what they feel, and what they experience. Now those four intentionalities, uh, brother, are, are, are um, very, uh, very compelling in terms of um, what teachers and educators might be able to do to help a child avoid that um, uh, school-to-prison pipeline. Um, yeah. yeah. When I ask the question, it does. When I asked the question, I was being even more intentional, though, to uh, really refer to um, the school system in general of intentionally wanting to put black children there. Not necessarily like, oh, someone might slip through the curbs, uh, uh, through the cracks, despite all of our best efforts. It's like intentionally, they treat black students rougher. They uh, put them in situations for them to act out. Uh, yeah. Uh, there's just so many things stacked against them uh, in the deck-wise. 
um, particularly in inner city schools, like we're saying with, with, with teachers that are underpaid, understaffed, overcrowded classrooms, textbooks are old, just everything is wrong to the, to the, to the standpoint of them succeeding, thus they don't, and then uh, punishments for trivial things or something smaller that like maybe a private school child might get away with, this student is put into juvenile uh, hall and then even more serious for like a fight or, or like say something like that. You, you know, you th think about it. They, they don't build private prisons to be empty, right? If, 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 I, if, if, if one builds a private prison, they're building the prison to make money, right? It's a business, a prison, prison industrial complex. So when you think about it, is, it, 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 it has been researched that the volume of prisons constructed are based on third and fourth grade test scores. Right. So, so, so if third and fourth grade test scores are low, then we can project how many cells will need to be required 10, 20 years later. Right. So, so therefore, when you look at it through that lens, yeah, it, it looks mighty deliberate because no one, no one's constructing a prison for it to sit there vacant. Like, 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 like the intent is for it to be full. But you got to get people to break laws or you got to you, you got to arrest people even when they don't break laws. Right. You got you, you got to, you got to fill it up. So so it makes sense. And that's why that consciousness of an educator is so vital. Right. In, in, in term in, in terms of that person in the front of that class and that person in the front of that building. Are building these scholars as opposed to anything else building these scholars via the intentionality of doing so. So there's a certain level of professional development that has to occur or that teacher to go directly to your question, that teacher that's coming in there with low expectations. Cause, cause think about it. I, I you know, one of, one of the beauties to my work, I get to have conversations that I would not ever have had in life. I've had these conversations during lunch breaks with teachers. They want it. They won't, they're not comfortable talking about this in front of the, the crowd, but during a lunch break or, 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 or just a break in the action, I may say to a teacher that's, that I'm vibing with, a teacher that happens to be white, I might add, hey, teacher, talk to me about your prior experience with black people intimately, familiarity intimately with black people prior to teaching. Now, I've met a, a lot, a, a lot of teachers that said to me, my initial exposure to black people are the students I teach. So, so prior, prior to teaching these, these sixth graders, these seventh grade, whatever it is, I've never been around black people. I've, I've obviously been seen them. I've passed them in the mall, passed them on the street, passed them at the sporting event, uh, saw them on television, but I've never been in their space. So now, so, 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 so now I can only imagine what they have been exposed to via the media so now all that media exposure for for this teacher's entire life and now all of a sudden i've got 20 black kids in my classroom well you don't know them all you know is what you've been exposed to through a media that was very deliberate about what you saw right so now that teacher is at a deficit from the outset and let's say that that teacher is in a school where everything we've talked about this morning is, is, is devoid. It doesn't exist. 
right? So now that teacher is going to operate, unless that teacher has the wherewithal to go beyond what teacher's been exposed to, that teacher's going to operate based on what that teacher has and, 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 and proceed that way. So now you, you talk about a, a school to prison pipeline, it's a given because I don't know the greatness of this youngster, right? And, and, and see, we didn't even talk about going way back into history. We, 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 we're talking about now just contemporary African-American child, contemporary Latino child. Being in my exposure to this child is, is pop culture, media, music, movies, etc. That's, that's, that's a real disadvantage for a young person. When you when you, when you've got a teacher that doesn't know you collectively coming in, absolutely. Um, I love that. I love your response to that question, and I both ways that you answered it. Um, and I th I think uh, I think that's something that, like we're saying, is um, on a lot of people's minds in terms of um, particularly living in like America. Uh, the system is rigged against us, uh, brothers like Heath, myself, obviously you. Um, can count ourselves lucky to 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 have survived it, you know, and 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 I really you know really to come out on the other side with our sanity as well. Um, and, and keep in mind now, I didn't survive it. Mm -hmm. Right, keep, keep keep that you know again. Mine was five years after high school mm -hmm. that I woke up, you know. So I, so I you know four four different high schools, three high schools in one school year. I can say that as well. <laughs> I can say that as well. <laughs> First one I was put out of. Right. right. So, um, so yes, yeah, so I didn't survive it, but by the grace of God, I woke up again 10 years later. That's a great, great testimony. I want to uh, transition to something extremely important to you and um, now to all of us. And it's kind of a two part question, but it ties into the same topic health. Yeah. Now, here we are. Uh, we're worried about our mental health. Okay because we're in you know, times of uncertainty and it's unprecedented. And um, we also are looking at teachers who are being furloughed, unpaid, schools closing. Um, you know, we have some e-learning questions later on, but I wanna, I wanna uh, ask you, can you give us any advice, first and foremost, even in a traditional setting, how we can stay healthy physically and yeah. mentally in our positions. Yeah, you, uh, some, some of you may know and, and others may not. I had a heart attack five years ago. Yes. Um, when I was doing a keynote address in Miami at the University of Miami, I was on the stage and it, happened, it was a 60 minute keynote and it happened about 30 minutes in. Um, I, you know, just in terms of a visual, cause some of you probably, when I said that, see me collapsing or something. And uh, I, I, yeah, I got, I got all this will and determination that I've been talking about here. I finished that speech um, undergoing a heart attack because I didn't know what it was. So I finished, I even took about three questions until I couldn't take any more. So, but, but the point was they rushed me to the hospital. They put a, a stent in my, my main artery, the LAD, that's your main artery. Uh, and, and it was clogged 100%. With, with plaque buildup, that, that was my diet, right? So, so the grease, the McDonald's, the, the Burger King, the Kentucky Fried Chicken, right? You know, all, the, all, all that accumulated. And in mine, you know, in terms of the, the, the fast food, it, it, it went to another level when I became a principal. 
right? I was eating stuff all my life, but I took it to another level as a principal and I was eating it like it was going out of style. So I was gaining all this weight. And, and then that day, May 1st, 2015, bam, here's the heart attack. So the next morning when the doctor talked to me, they said oh, what accompanied the heart attack was diabetes. So I had a double whammy in one night. So in him explaining to me what I needed to do in terms of a, of, of a lifestyle change, you know, I fought it initially because I, I thought it was impossible. He said I had to change my diet drastically and said I had to exercise daily. And in my, in my mind, how do I exercise when I'm on flights literally every day, um, if not every other day? And, and getting in late at night, arriving to hotels like midnight and one o'clock in the morning, and then got to get up at five to do a six hour presentation and then repeat it the next day in some other city miles away in the same cycle. I'm like, that's impossible, Doc. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, do you want to live? I said, yeah. He said, well, you'll find a way. And I found a way. So at that time, I shed 40 pounds in uh, four months. It just wow. fell off. Because, and a lot of it was because of the soda. I didn't mention the soda. I was drinking Coca-Colas and Pepsis anywhere from, say, six to 10 a day. Because I was this constant refill, constant refill at the restaurants while I'm on the road. So all that sugar. So I haven't had a soda. I haven't had a sip of soda in five years, right? It, I, I, just, I just will not experiment with that anymore. So when I stopped the soda, the weight just fell right off. Right. So I'm saying to you and then the exercise, the walking, you know, I don't I don't I, I went during when the gyms were open, I would run and walk. But now with, with it being what it is, I just kind of walk about three miles a day. I try to do six days a week, if not seven. Keeps me healthy. So the diet I'm on, I'm on this fresh fish diet pretty much. And um, but just a balanced diet. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a health fanatic in that regard. Just just a, a good balanced diet. And, um, and the exercise, and I'm good. I take no medication, no insulin for diabetes at all, right? So I sit here when I'm home, particularly during this pandemic, I see a lot of television. And you see all these, these diabetes commercials and heart commercials. I mean, it seems like it's more heart and diabetes commercials than anything. But for the diabetes, I'm taking nothing, uh, no insulin, no nothing, because I manage it 100% through the diet and exercise. So my A1C has been perfect. Um, ever since I was diagnosed because of that. So it's doable, but, but that requires the D word, discipline. One has to be disciplined and be able to walk away from those things that you love and crave in the past so that you can have, maintain um, a healthy diet and live to be able to talk to your students. Because if you don't take care of you, you're not in position to be there for them. Right. So that's that's critical. You know, if, if, if I could say real quick, um, uh, brother, brother Barely, we got a we got an author that just chimed, just, just checked in from uh, Cincinnati. Wow. Um, Christine Gibson. And I just want to shout her out because she's got yeah. these books. As a matter of fact, they're sitting right here. Show it, please. Got let's, to. Get, let's get the title up. Yeah, it, it's called Big Hair. Big Hair. Uh, Christine's Adventures. Christine goes to school. <laughs> And I, I met her, I spoke in uh, Cincinnati, and she was in my audience. And she was apparently liking what I was saying, so we had a conversation, and she told me she was an author and wrote these books, Christine Gibson, right? So Google her, and these, I read these books, and these are phenomenal books. Young sister, she just got her doctorate, right? And uh, you wow. see her there, Christine Gibson. Congratulations. So yeah, 
check out her stuff. This is this is good stuff here for your for your young ladies. So we give them some imagery of young people, including the hair that looks like them. Right, good stuff. Uh, we also have a question, uh, Principal Cafele, from a uh, aspiring author. Um, he has a two-part question for you. I'm gonna try to make it as uh, broken down as possible. He says. Um, He's finishing up his first book, and he wants to know what advice can you give to an aspiring author that is uh, intentional about exposing the way the U.S. public school system is failing black and brown children. That's part one. Part two to the question is uh, how can he position himself to be a successful author like you are, and what steps does he re do you recommend to be a successful author? Yeah, great question, and I... I got way ahead of the question because that was the, that was one of the primary questions that was coming my way for, for years, decades. So what I did last December, I said, let me just, let me, let me just get them some free game. You know, and some, some folks out there know I give a lot of free game on social media. Sorry to cut you one second. You come back in, but like, I want everyone to realize this is 100% free game that we're getting right now. There's so many gems being dropped in this call. This is a professional speaker. He gets paid thousands to do what he's doing right now for us. We appreciate you so much. Sorry, continue. I appreciate you. So what I, what I did last December, I said I was going to do this over like a period of, of, of days, and I got so into it that I did it in one day. I made four one-hour video, videos each called Thoughts to Consider for Writing a Best-Selling Book. So the, so the first, if, if I'm memorizing correctly, the first video is on the planning process. So, so a lot of times people think, I just, just, just get the paper, get the, get the computer and start writing. No, there's in-depth planning that has to go with, 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 your, with, with the, um, your journey before you start writing. So I did a one-hour video on just how to plan for your book. The next video was called writing. So now it's, it's, it's not just because a lot of times a, a, a new author or, or, or a, a prospective author will say to me, like, how do you organize? Like, how do you know what's chapter one, what's chapter two? How do you organize that? How do you structure that? So the second video is an hour on just how to do that how to write the book, how to structure the book, how to brainstorm what the outline will look like. And see, to give you the short answer for me, when I write a book, I've written 11. I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to promote about four of them in a few minutes. But I've written about, I've written 11. But what I do, I write, I keep like either I have a pad with me or, or the pad on the phone, and I will write an outline. And as I'm just going through my life, ideas are popping in my head because my mind is on my book. So, so, so typically if, when I'm about to write a book, it's usually four months that it's on my mind, four or five months, maybe six months before I start writing the book. So I got this pad with me and I'm brainstorming as I'm just walking through life. I'm seeing things. As I'm watching TV. I'm seeing things. As I'm having conversations with people, I'm hearing things. So then I'll jot it down. So then, then, so then I'll take that and I'll structure it into an outline. And that outline becomes the skeleton of the book. That outline becomes the chapters of the book and the subchapters, right? The subtopics, I'm sorry. So now by the time I write, it's time to write the book. Man, let me tell you something. It's so easy because all I'm doing is plugging in. See, 
I'm not I'm not figuring out what's what's chapter one going to be, what's chapter two, what's going to be in it. No. Now I'm just plugging in what I wrote over the previous four, five, six months, right? So that's part of the writing process. And then you always have to have an overarching question. Like, like your book, you got a title, but you but that whole book wants to be a response to a question, right? So, like, for example, this book here I wrote called The Principle 50. I wrote it in 2015, Critical Leadership Questions for Inspiring Classroom, I mean, School-Wide Excellence. So as an overarching question, I said to myself, in what ways does a principle inspire school-wide excellence? That means every word I wrote was responding to that question. So, that, so the translation, I had a purpose for writing. See, so, see, some people, they just writing. And then it's, or even an article or a blog, a blog in particular, because those are not, a blogger is not necessarily a trained writer. So you'll see stuff, it's like all over the place, right? And it, it'll be like, like you, you want to keep a blog to say like 500 to 1,000 words max, and they'll write like 3,000 words, and it's, it's too much, and it's all over the place, right? I say, yo, bring that down about 500 words and make your point concisely by responding to a question, right? So that's the second tape uh, video. The third one is the, um, the publishing. So, so how do I publish? So that goes directly to the question that was just asked by, 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 the, by the person here that asked it, um, because you, you said you want to position yourself to be able to write about the school system from your vantage point. So now you have to consider who out there is going to publish that work. Obviously, some are not. Obviously, some will, right? So you got to find that publisher or you have to make a determination as to whether or not you can self-publish it. You know, so, so I talk about what self-publishing entails because, see, I was self-published from 1991 until 2008. I was self-published by choice. Publishers wanted to publish me, but I refused to allow them to publish me at that time because I wanted my, like I said about the speaking, I wanted to be independent. But what I discovered was that as long as I stayed independent, my books were going to collect dust in the basement. See, when I, was, um, when I was a new author, I had no job. I had taught. Then I wrote my books. I left teaching for two years. And all I did, my full-time job was my book, A Black Parent's Handbook to Educating Your Children. I, I go up to Harlem on 125th Street in Brooklyn and, 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 just, and just hustle my books particularly with street vendors, just hustle my books, 12 months a year, just hustling my books. That book, that, 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 doing it that way, that book brought in, a, a, it brought in an income for me, little $5 book, right? But as I got busy into my principalship, I don't have time to sell a book. So, so, so my publisher, ASCD, convinced me of the same thing. They said, how can you sell a book the kind of hours you work as, as the principal? I said, write for us and we'll sell your book. And they did. Every book I've written for them became a bestseller. So I had to go that route. So self-publishing works for some. Being published works for others. You got to do the research, but the video will tell you everything. And then the last video is the marketing and distribution. I get a lot of compliments from people. They say, they say to me, and this is not me patting me on myself on the back. I'm saying this because I want to be, I want to be thorough with my answer. A lot of folks say to me, they say, man, you, 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 you are a beast with marketing. I hear that all the time. 
You a marketing beast. And, you know, my undergraduate degree, remember I told you I learned, I learned the, 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 the art of teaching later on after I was already in it because my undergrad degree was in marketing. I, I studied marketing in undergrad, so I learned something about selling. So I never thought I was going to use it until I woke up one day and said, wait a minute, as a classroom teacher, I'm selling, I'm marketing. As a principal, I'm marketing. As a consultant, as a speaker, I'm marketing. As a businessman, I'm marketing. So now I run around America saying to anybody that's willing to listen, no teacher should go through teach pre-service training in undergrad school without at least one course called Marketing 101. Because market, when you're in a classroom with young people, you're literally selling. But there's so many teachers in the room that don't know how to sell. You can't sell your product. Your, the lesson you're teaching that day is your product and you can't sell it. So therefore, theoretically, you can't eat. But the problem is the young people won't be able to eat either because it was a lose-lose. You couldn't sell and they were not willing to buy. See, so I'm saying here, you got to know how to sell your product. See, see, you could be master of teaching algebra. You could be master of teaching biology. You could be master of your content area, but you don't know how to sell it. You go to a car dealership. You find some car salesman at the, or saleswoman at the dealership. They know their cars inside and out. They know everything about the car, the features of the car, the benefits of the car, everything about the car. But here's what they don't know. I'm talking about the one that's not selling now. They don't know people. See, 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 the master salesman is not one that knows the product. The master salesman is the one that knows the buyer. See, that's, that's the difference between uh, the person that's, that's employed to sell and the one that actually sells. See, they, see people think I got to be a master of my product. No, you got to be a master of the buyer. See, so, so now as the buyer... You, as you forge relationships in, in terms of selling a product, forge relationships with this person and get to know what they're into. Like if, if, if you walk into my showroom as a, as a salesman and I discover within the first minute, which I'm going to, what you do professionally and you tell me you a teacher, you tell me you an educator, I'm going, I'm going to ride that all the way to when you sign the offer sheet, right? Because all we're going to talk about is what you do. We're not talking about no car. We're going to talk about what you do. And I, and, and I will be doing minimal talking because once I pose the right questions, the, the, the buyer is going to come in there talking about teaching and learning. We ain't talking about no cars. We're going to be talking about teaching and learning, and I'm going to tell you how great you must be in what you do. And next thing you know, you be driving out that showroom with a car that you didn't even intend on buying. You came in there just to shop around, but I knew people. You see the difference? So now think about the classroom. You, you, you the math guru, man. You could write textbooks on, on, on mathematics, biology, chemistry, whatever. But you don't know them kids sitting in there. Guess what? So what about your knowledge base? So what? Ain't nobody benefiting from it. But on the other hand, you know them kids. And you know how they learn. You know how they think. You know how they make sense out of information. You know how they process information. You understand them culturally. 
You understand their reality, so their experiences, their reality, their challenges, their obstacles, their needs, their interests, their goals, their aspirations, how they think, how they learn, what motivates them, what inspires them. Now you have positioned yourself. If that receiver football fans out there is running down the sideline and you got a quarterback with a quarterback with a good arm and, and you are on defense and you are out of position, position then you're going to get burnt every time and that receiver is going to score on you but if you position yourself then you increase the probability that you will either deflect that pass or intercept it and there will be no touchdown but you got to be in position and and i say all that to say that as it relates to making that connection you have to be in position to make it done so you got to know the children. And that's why I say that marketing is crucial. Some more, uh, some more questions here, uh, that I want to, that I want to kind of flip through so we can try to get to everyone. Um, and this one has, uh, you know, very, very, very timely, um, um, a relationship. So thoughts on homeschooling. Um, and then if you can, um, switch that into, um, how, how educators can pivot for this new COVID situation, um, as well as your thoughts on distance learning, e-learning. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot there. The, the uh, let's 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 go to COVID and distance learning first. E-learning. Um, one of my main topics these days is teaching through a global through, uh, through Zoom, teaching through a global pandemic, and leading through a global pandemic. And I, I always say, if you did not have a strong relationship with your students prior to the pandemic, then you're probably struggling right now. Because this is not necessarily the medium where you're gonna build those relationships, looking at children on a screen. And, and, and those are the students who have internet access and a computer. There's another 30, 30, 35% out there in America that education stopped for them, formal education stopped for them back in March, right? So it, it's not even happening. But the ones that you have access, and that's the inequity, te technologically speaking. But, 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 but in terms of the ones that you have access to, if you didn't have that relationship then, then it's going to be very difficult to forge it now, right? It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean you, don't st you don't stop trying, but, but there's, 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 it's, the effort is, is going to be just more so because we're talking about looking at faces on a screen. But here's the thing. To give you the short version. I say shame on any of us that when youngster comes on the screen, we start teaching, right? I mean, because during normal times, and I quote, say quote unquote normal, because normal wasn't always good. But during, during those times, youngster, let's say youngsters coming from that environment I talked about before that's very overwhelming, right? So there are things going on in that home that are not that are not emotionally healthy or even physically healthy for a youngster. But that youngster had a reprieve called school and maybe even after school program. And now that youngster could conceivably be away from that for 10, 12 hours in a day and then go home at night and, and have to deal with it, have to endure it. If we're for, if we're aware of it, then we can intervene. But I'm 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 in this case, 
assuming that we don't even know what's going on and youngster hasn't told us and we haven't seen signs of it. So now youngster goes back, but then tomorrow I can come back to school and be in that environment, that, that, that nurturing, theoretically, that nurturing, nurturing environment where I feel whole. But now here comes this thing called COVID-19. COVID and now my, my outlet is gone. And now all that stuff that is not emotionally, physically, spiritually, psychologically, mentally healthy, I'm trapped in it. I'm, I'm, I'm in that space 24-7. And now, but I got internet access. I got, I, 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 and, and I have a computer. So now I come on the screen and there's you. And you got me jumping into a lesson. Hey, teacher, do you know what I've dealt with for the past 24 hours? Do, do, do you know what life is here? Hey, teacher, my mom hasn't worked in two months. Hey, teacher, it's some angry adults in my house right now, my home right now. Right? It's, 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 it's not normal at home right now. There are things happening right now that we've never seen. Or, hey, teacher, five people died that, that are close to me. Hey, teacher, there are folks, they're, 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 there's, there's virus in my house and we can't do social distancing. It's too many of us in here or the space is too small or we can't quarantine. My wife and I had COVID-19 had COVID in March, both of us. I, had I was going to get to that. I Go ahead. It to her. So I, I, we, we, we had enough space where I could be up in the room all day. But think about that youngster that can't. Right. So now, so, but, but yet comes on the screen and you talking about, let's jump into this math lesson from yesterday. Yeah. yeah the, the, the furthest thing from relevance for that youngster in that moment is that lesson. But, but if that teacher realizes or better word positioned oneself that I matter to my youngsters, that my youngsters can't wait. I mean, and, and, and if, if, if you can't feel this, right. Then when we go off of this thing, you, you gotta go, you gotta find a quiet space and you gotta work on you. If you can't feel what I'm getting ready to say. That young and, and here and here's what I was getting ready to say. So so youngster says, I can't wait to be in the space of my teacher, even if it's virtually, because my teacher means that much to me. See, my teacher makes me feel whole. My teacher makes me feel like I'm special. My teacher makes me feel like, like despite what I'm dealing with now, that I'm going to be a success story. If, if, if you're sitting here listening to me right now and, and, and you find that you can't receive that, like, like, like I don't know if I'm that one, you have to work on that. Because I will say respectfully to you, how dare you bring that notion to a youngster that I'm not that one. That, that youngster can't afford for you to bring that notion. That young, it's, it's like there's, a, there's another book I wrote called The Teacher 50, 50 Self-Reflective Questions. And the first question is my, my go-to. Are my students at an advantage because I am their teacher? Man, let me say that again. Are my students at an advantage because I am their teacher? 
there are three over 3.5 million teachers in America. There are over 50.6 million school-aged children and over 90,000 schools. That means any given youngster could have wound up any, anywhere, any given teacher could have wound up anywhere. But if you think real quick, think about a youngster in your classroom that needs you most, right? That needs you more than anything. You and that youngster have converged on the same point. You're in that same space by fate. So now let's go back to that question. Are my students at an, is, is that student at an advantage because I am your teacher? Because we wound up at the same place, which, which the question implies, could some other teacher have wound up there instead of you? And the probability for that youngster being successful increases because of some other teacher being the teacher. If there's somebody right now grappling with that question, it is designed for you to say, ouch. That's why I wrote it. But if you're grappling with that question, I'm saying to you right now, you got between now and the next time you see them students on this screen, on your screen, to fix that. You, you have to, like, like those of you that, look, that, that, that play sports or love sports, you know the team or the individual, if it's tennis or golf or whatever, you know, the t you know that the athletes can't walk out on the field and look at the opponent and conclude, we can't beat them. I mean, we beat them other teams because they weren't as good, but this, this team, we, we can't beat them. Well, that's the equivalent to the teacher walking to the room. You look at certain students, I don't, I don't know about that one. I don't, I don't know if I connect, can connect with him or her then you need to, right then and there, get somebody else in there that will, right? Because, because, because you're, you're admitting, I can't take this youngster to another level. Well, guess what? Somebody can. So you have to go in there with the confidence, the efficacy that, that I'm the one. Not, not, I'm not talking about you being egotistical and cocky and all that. I'm just talking about your confidence and your belief in yourself, your skill set, that I could walk into that room and I got this. this. This book here, I'm not doing this deliberately to plug. It's just that my titles are very strategic. I wrote this in 2018. Is my school a better school because yeah. I lead it, right? This, this was personal, this title. This, this was a question that I asked myself one. 180 days. Is my school a better school because I lead it? Why 180 days, Kefele? Why not just one day? Because every day was different. And some of those days yielded a no answer. That's why. Some of them days, I look at the facade of that school during dismissal, because that's when I asked the question at dismissal as the, as the students were leaving, and now they're gone, and it's just me in the building, and I'm staring at the front of the building. Hey, Kefele, is, is, is that school a better school because you lead it? Here's my answer some days. Nope, not today. Somebody else could have come in here and led this school and taken these kids to another level. Well, what was the problem? I had two non-negotiables. Two. Non-negotiable number one. Was I the instructional leader that I claimed to be? And that day, no, I was not. I visited no classrooms and I had no interaction with teachers about pedagogy. I was not the guy that I claimed to be. Non-negotiable number two, student engagement. 
Did I engage with students beyond my impersonal morning message? Did I, did, did I have conversations with productive, constructive conversations with students in the hallway, in the cafeteria, between classes, in the stairwell, wherever, during the course of the day? Nope, didn't talk to nobody today. Then somebody else could have come in here and led this school. That was how, that, that was how I self-evaluated. I don't need an evaluative record to tell me how effective I am. My mirror does a very good job. Right. So all I got to do is use the mirror. And that's how I determined. So, so now I, I had to put forth a game plan going into the next day. <clears throat> how will I ensure that those two non-negotiables are met so that when I look at the front of that building tomorrow, I can conclude that I am the best option for that school. Right. So I'm saying all that to say with that COVID answer, you have to be that person even on your on your on your computer. But in terms of homeschooling, I, I, I know people that do it. And if, if they have the wherewithal, and, and, and that's, that's all the way K-12 to do that, then I say more power to them, but never forget the social skills that young people need to develop, right? Because you, you, you could be home and, and, and be very book smart, very intelligent academically, intellectually, but, but but that, 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 that social growth is crucial as well. And if, if, if that homeschooler is putting youngster in environments where youngster can interact with peers, right, then, then fine. Then, then I, I don't have a problem with it. But that's the piece. You know, I, I want youngster to be able to function in a world beyond a homeschool dining room table, Right. So that's, that's, that's the part to be taken into consideration always, that social dynamic, that youngster that's been home, you know, protected from the, from the world because we, we, you're learning everything at home and now you get out here in this real world with real people and real challenges and you're not ready for that. See, that's, that's, that's where that problem, that, that problem lies. So just got to make sure that that whole social piece is in place. So that that youngster, because see, even you think about in a, in a classroom, a student-centered classroom that, 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 that's rooted in, in, in collaboration, cooperative learning, right? Um, sometimes teachers will get frustrated because the, te because the students are not on task in a cooperative learning situation. So the students, they're sitting in these clusters, but they're talking about other than the task at hand. And I say, so, so, that, so, so and, and because of that, teacher might throw in the towel give up and put them back in rows in this very impersonal learning situation. And I say, teacher, don't, don't become frustrated. They're not on task because perhaps no one has ever taught them how to communicate with one another. I say to just about 100% of my audiences, when I have a teacher audience, you can't assume that just because they have a mouth to speak and ears to hear that they have mastered the art of communication. You can't make that assumption. Communication is a science that has to be taught. So, so, so and, and see, and, and now I'm just talking one-to-one. -one. The ability to speak and the ability to listen the other person simultaneously without preconceptualizing what you're going to say in response and thereby miss what was being said. That's a skill. So now you take that and multiply it and you got five or six kids in a cluster and they're working collaboratively to solve a problem, 
they may not know how to do that. They may know how to solve the problem, but they may not know how to interact with one another in terms of getting it done. That's something that's got to be ongoing that the teacher teaches, right? But that, but see, that's not that's not even the learning skill. That's the social skill, learning learning to to communicate socially. But that's the social skill. So now I'm going back to the home instruction. That's the part youngsters not going to be exposed to. See, if, if youngsters being homeschooled, it's mother and child, or father and and child, whatever it is, and it's just the two of y'all all day, right? At what point? Does this youngster get to work with five or six people and solve a problem, right? It's not going to happen unless that youngster, unless that, that, that parent takes youngster in another environment where that youngster has that opportunity to engage in that. Because when that youngster becomes an adult, that youngster will need that skill. And if that youngster doesn't have that skill to be able to, to, to work socially with others, that youngster is going to be at a deficit. Much agreed, much agreed. And uh, again, thank you so much for the game. You know, I'm, 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 uh, I'm gonna call that. It's definitely, uh, it's definitely not, not uh, to be, to be taken lightly. But um, you are literally giving us game. So yeah, definitely, thank you for that answer. Uh, this one goes a little bit back to the, um, uh, um, the, the prison kind of pipeline situation, but it's different. Um, do you feel like black children should need to be taught to defend themselves against not only past slights like, you know, um, slavery or racism, Jim Crow type stuff, but also the current clear and present danger of just being black in America and going outside? And I mean, we see it every day on the news. Should that, should that be that, that question? I'm sorry, Danny. Let me answer that question. Dr. Francis Quest Welsing, uh, author of the ISIS papers actually yes. said that that should be taught. Yes. So I'm glad you. I'm glad somebody asked that question because that's extremely important. I want to know your thoughts. And see, I read her in my development. So, so me becoming a teacher, to me, that was a no-brainer. That 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 they have to have that kind of information, right? I understand that that in some schools, right, maybe many many schools. You walking on landmines, having those conversations because of the politics of the school or the politics of the district, politics of the staff. I, I get that. But see, for me, once I've created that bond with my students, once, once, once I know there's loyalty in that classroom between them and I, then, then I can do those. I can, I can engage them in those conversations because those conversations are unavoidable. Let me give you an example. This, you know, I guess, I guess this was personal because I'm an author, but it, but it didn't have to be solely because I'm an author. But because I went, because I wrote before I became a teacher, that too was my foundation. So now I'm in the school. My first year when I taught in Jersey, as opposed to New York City, my first year in Jersey, I said, okay, their teacher is an author. Why aren't they authors? That was my question. So I, my, this, this was a sixth grade class. So I decided, I, I, took a, I took a topic that dealt with history and, and, and a lot of what was said in that question in terms of consciousness, right? Gave them a topic, and we were self-contained that year. I said, all 25 students, in fact, I think it was 30, large class. I, I gave them a, a prompt. I want them to write this essay on this topic that dealt with their own consciousness. And I said, we're going to write a book. 
So they wrote, they, they, they responded to this essay. We worked on their essays over a period of time. I typed them up because back in the days, you know, we didn't have computers in the classroom yet. We're talking now 1992. So they, it, 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 we weren't at that point now where every classroom had, a, had even one computer just yet. So I came home and typed them up and I put them in this binder. I only had the one copy. And man, them kids, they, they, they loved that book. The principal loved the book. And it wasn't even a real book yet. It was, it was a binder, right? Do me a favor. Hey, Gabriel, hey, yeah. open that closet door for me real quick. I want to show you something. So on the, floor, on the floor is a box, right on the floor, a little box. Give me that box. I want to show you what that culminated into. Yeah, give me that. So, so the next year, I said, okay, as much thank you. As, as, as much as I liked, as much as I liked the um, the uh, the one book in the binder, I said, but I, I could take this to another level, right? So, I, so here's what we did, and this goes back to the question that was asked. Anybody could do this. It's not just me as an author. I said, as a teacher, and, and I, I need you guys to never forget that I said how where my foundation was in, in that African that African centered reading back in undergraduate school. So that was my base. It was all I knew. So I go into the school and I said, the students, the, my class, you have to know the Nguzo Saba, the seven principles of Kwanzaa. I mean, there's just no getting around it, right? I'm not going to indoctrinate Kwanzaa on you, but I am going to expose you to it. And then you make the decision if you want to own it, right? So I'm going to expose you to Kwanzaa, but, but, but what I really want you to know are the seven principles because they're critical. Unity, self-determination, collective work and responsibility, cooperative economics, purpose, creativity, faith. I mean, those are universal. So I said, okay, let's... Let's take those principles and let's, let's this time create a real book with a spine. But this time, let's not just have one copy. Let's have a copy for every student in the building. Now, my, my, my principal didn't have a budget for this. Fine. I wasn't making a lot of money either. Fine. But with the money I'm making, now we departmentalized by that. All 125 students going to have a copy of their book because in the book every student had a page and their name on the top every student had a page so now it's funny every kwanzaa in real time i post these on my facebook page and a whole lot of them students who, who this is back you see the date 94 95 they, they adults with their own families they will post their they still got them so they'll post them on Facebook as well, or they'll beg me to send them copies, which I don't have. I only got one of each year. So we made this one. We made the Umoja book. So like, think about what the question that was asked me. It says, the seven principles of Kwanzaa, their importance, making them a part of me and making them a part, making them work in my community, which speaks to that question that was raised to me in terms of bringing that consciousness in the classroom. Umoja. Why is it important? How will I make it a part of me and how will I make it work in my community? So how will I make unity work amongst black people is what the youngsters were responding to. So all of them had their own page and they, you know, they, they some of them were shorter than others. Some of them were very long, but these are fifth graders talking to me about a concept that they had no prior familiarity with. 
Kuji Chagalia, self-determination. How are we going to take self-determination and infuse that or incorporate that into us? My history and culture are extremely important to me. Why? Well, so, so every student in that fifth grade talking about that. We went on and they all would get a copy. They were all excited. And then since I'm close to New York City, we went over to um, WLIB at the time. If those of you in New York, you remember WLIB was well, still around, but it's not the, the format it used to have with Imhotep Gary Bird. Um, and we, would, we, we were on his show, took a few students, drove them up there in my truck. And we were on his show talking about our books, you know, so we took it to that level and talking about the consciousness. And that's, and that's the critical part. Would you, would you go as, those are great examples and it feels very high ground um, in terms of like here, here, there are real dangers out there. And uh, here's how we're going to try to combat that for certain age students and what have you. Um, so if you like, like say for example, police brutality, right? We're going to deal with that head on. Like, like here's, here's an interesting thing. When, 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 when Mike Brown and Trayvon Martin were happening, right? It was, it was, I'm, I'm going to give you this. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give you the, the reverse and work my way to where I want to be. When those things were happening, my former students were going on my Facebook page and they on my page and they were saying, uh, Mr. Kefele, we know where we would be tomorrow if we were still in your school. Now, let me tell you what that means. These were students that I had when I was principal. They knew that if there was some shooting, right, Ahmad Arbery, they knew that if there was a shooting today, that we would be in my gym or auditorium tomorrow. There'll be no instruction tomorrow morning. We, there'll be instruction, but it won't be math and science. We will be in the auditorium having a school-wide discussion on something that happened that is not even in New Jersey. So listen, my strategies are not necessarily something that everybody on this screen could do. Like, like let's say there's some principal listening to me right now and you work in an XYZ school district. You might not be one who could now, there was a shooting, bring your students to the auditorium and you discuss the shooting with them and then open up the floor for them to express themselves on the shooting. You might not be able to do that because you might not have a job tomorrow. I'm telling you, this is how I roll, right? So if it wasn't, the, if, if it wasn't me bringing them to the, to the uh, auditorium, then it was me over the PA going all into period one, having a discussion with them about that, but not just the shooting, but in terms of the reality of being a black male in America. We're having that discussion. But here's the beauty to it, uh, Brother Marlon. Because I'm that guy, and because I have nurtured my staff that way, because see, we're, we're not having the staff meeting where we're talking about like, like, like there are schools that will spend 30 minutes having a gripe session about the fact that the copier in the teacher's lounge is not working, right? Or that the paper that we ordered, the copy paper hasn't arrived yet, or some other mess that could be reduced to an email. In my staff meetings, 
We are talking about teaching and learning solely, but not generically. We're talking about teaching and learning as it relates to the students we service. So if we need to talk about the dangers of being a black male, for example, to use that as an example, my teachers have to be conversant in that conversation. And if they're not conversant in that conversation, and that conversation is solely a kafele thing, but it's not a us thing, a we thing, then it's all for naught because I can't just have the conversation being when Kefele brings hundreds of kids together in an auditorium. I need the teacher with the 25 to feel comfortable. If the teacher's not comfortable, I at least want the teacher to let them have the conversation in the classroom. See, so, but see, that speaks to this other word. It speaks to culture, the culture of a school. So that's the kind of culture that I developed. So the person that asked that question, at the, at the root of your question and the root of how you make this become your reality, whether you be a teacher or, or an aspiring administrator or an administrator, is the culture that you nurture for your school where this is a part of what you do. See, people from the outside that knew me and my work, they walk into school, they, have expect, they had expectations. This is how Kefele leads. This is what he does. This is what we talk about in that school because that's who I was. So I'm not shying away from those conversations. We're not shying away from the race conversation. And we're bringing in speakers that engage them in those conversations as well. It's doable, but, 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 but I don't want to mislead anybody out here. I, there could be someone watching me right now or see the video later and you, you young and you naive and, and you think you're just going to go out there and do it like, like I did it or someone else did it. No, you listen, <laughs> listen to me. We'll put your ear to the speaker. You have to learn how to do this, yeah. right? You, you, you can't be me, right? Because see, we, each, each and every one of us, we're, we're individuals, right? And, and we're who we are. So I figured out how to do that, right? But, but, but I did pay a price. Told you that'd be in the book later, next one of the books. But, but you, but you got you to gotta know how to do this. You got to know how to do, you got to be, learn how to be your authentic self, but to be able to do this at the same time. Because if, if, if being that teacher, being that principal was your dream, was your passion, I would hate for you to move unstrategically, if that's a word, and you lost it all. And now you're not in, you're not in position to be in that school anymore because they ran you up out of there. So now you can't do what you want to do because you tried to go here when you should have gone here. I'm not asking you to compromise your soul. I'm just asking you to be strategic in how you go about doing it. Yeah, it's funny, Dr. Cornell West talks about surviving to fight another day. Yeah. You know, and um, you know, in our line of work, especially, you know, I like how you use the word system. Um, in our line of work, we definitely have to uh, be very savvy, smart, remove a lot of emotion. You know, we could take it in the car and take it home, you, you know, and blow off some steam somewhere else. But we definitely have to be uh, smart enough to navigate the system to be able to fight for our kids another day. That's right. Um, you know, I can't wait for this book because, uh, like I said, when I and, I and I'll go back to the beginning of this uh, call. You speaking in 2010, and I don't know if I was in the fifth row back, I saw maybe a 
that a few years older, Heath, like, wow, I can do this. And of course I had to go back to my school district and I couldn't do, I couldn't do it. Like there was, there was certain uh, things that I just couldn't do. Um, when you go to a NAPSI conference or any type of conference, educational conference, you get energized by Principal Gefele and, and, and others, but then you come back to reality to your school district. And that's yeah. been very tough for educators. It's, 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 it is. And, 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 you know, as a, as a presenter, I'm always conscious of that. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. When I, when I speak at a NAPSI, um, and, and my audience at a NAPSI conference, because it's called National Alliance of Black School Educators, so I'm talking to a black audience. So there's, there's you know, they, they, people tell me that I bring fire to my presentations. But when I go to NAPSI, I bring extra fire, right? Because I know what they're going back to because I was in those shoes, right? So I want that fire to last as long as it can because it's, it's tough. It's, it's tough. You know, I don't have to say this to you. You all, you all already know this. I'm going to say it anyway. It's tough to be your authentic self within those systems, right? It's, 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 it's not an easy thing to do. But our children are in there. So therefore, you and I need to be in there, right? So, so we, we just have to figure out how to do this. But I'm, but I'm going to keep on saying while I bang on my table, I'm not saying compromise your soul, mm. right? As somebody might say, sell out. I like compromise your soul better, right? So I'm not saying compromise your soul. I'm just saying be smart, be strategic, while still accomplishing the same ends. Right, so that, so that you can have, have longevity in being there for those young people because they need you, right? And, and so, so always fall back on your initial why, W-H-Y. Always fall back on it. Why am I doing this in the first place? I, I promise you, there are people in schools that had a why as to why they went, a purpose as to why they began to do this work, but they lost it. They lost their way. They lost their will. And as a result of losing their way and losing their will, they lost their why. They left it somewhere in the wilderness. I'm saying to you, it's easy to find a person that lost their why. Just find that person that's lost their way. And, and the one that lost their way, they'll make, they'll make themselves very well known. They're cranky. They're upset. They'll tell you how many more days before the next holiday vacation. They'll tell you how many years before retirement. They'll tell you how the children are no, are no longer fun. I mean, all sorts of things, right? Because they lost their why. Because the challenges that they face now were challenges back 20 years ago. This has never been easy work. But because they lost their why, they're just, they're just there wandering. So I say you got to go back and find your why. And then as you find your why, bring it close to the vest and never let it, let, let it leave. Keep it right there, right? And then you proceed forward. Now, I, I, do me a favor, forgive me. It's, I, I got no, it's another author on here I got to shout out. We got, got Toby Scruggs Hussein on here. I don't know the title of her book. Put it in the chat, Toby. Please. And uh, she's, on, she's out on the West Coast, but put it in the chat so that folks know your book. She's another independent self-employed consultant out here doing big things. I just don't know her book title, right? So put it in the chat. And you guys look for Toby Scruggs, Hussein, 
and see that book she's got out there. She's doing big things in the in the in the equity world um, nationally, but her base is out in California. Um, okay, other question uh, from the from the chat. We have someone that wants to know about New Jersey in particular. Um, she says that uh, in New Jersey, there's a high rate of autism in children. Do you happen to know why, or have you read anything about that? You know, that's I, I've heard that. I don't. I don't know why. I'm going to be very honest with you. I don't. I don't know what that is. Um, that's that's something that warrants me to explore, to see what you know, to see what that's all about. Okay. And, and, I don't know what it is about New Jersey. Yeah. I do know that New Jersey is very densely populated, so it, it gives the appearance that it is small, but it is not. Um, there are over 600 school districts in this state. You know, um, it's, 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 I mean, we're, we're packed in down here. <laughs> you ought to see my block here. I mean, it's just houses on top of houses. It's, it's, very den it's a very densely populated state, particularly the urban areas. Mm. I can remember, because uh, uh, I, grew, I grew up in Hempstead, Long Island, and I can remember uh, driving, um, you know, between, between um, you know, the, the, uh, the New Jersey Turnpike. Yeah. And... You know, there's reason why, you know, New Yorkers kind of like, you know, take a jab in New Jersey and call it Dirty Jersey. Like, there'd always be this, like, smell over there and these, like, big, like, um, I don't know, like, you know, they're, like, making something. I don't know what they're making. I was a kid. But, like, we was always like, man. Oil, it's an oil refinery. And, and what they do, because the comedians, Johnny uh, Johnny Carson used to do, no, not him, uh, Le Jay Leno used to do this joke all the time. See, it's, it's, it's one stretch of the turnpike. It's like, you in and out of it within five minutes, and 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 the, what the, what folks do outside of Jersey, they attribute that little stretch to the entire state. That's, that's, that's what people do because that little stretch is oil refinery. When you're on the plane landing into Newark Airport, you see the whole thing. Yeah. Okay, so uh, whoever asked that question, that might be it. That might be causing autism. <laughs> uh, we had uh, we had another question. Um, Financial intelligence. How, how how crucial do you think that is to be taught in schools to our young black children from an early age? Yeah, it's and in, in, in once again, me as a classroom teacher, that was my thing. You know, if if nothing else but to understand how to balance a checkbook, right? But but that financial intelligence. At, at the level of maturity upon which the student is, that, that starts in, in, in kindergarten. It, it, it starts there, right? Because, because we're talking about numbers, pre, uh, pre, uh, preschool, pre-K. It starts there, and as we work our way up, financial literacy is just as important as any, anything else, any other subject area that they're being exposed to. You, got, you guys hearing me with, without the, the, the talking on the side of me? Yeah. Okay, I'm coming through. Okay. Do you have any more questions from the group? Uh, I have one for me because I'm, I'm, I'm learning. I'm learning. And uh, this, uh, this, this has to do with uh, what you're doing now uh, in terms of um, educational speakers yeah. and uh, you know, people representing um, you know, from your background. So uh, I, was, I was on something yesterday, um, a very interesting uh, group chat with thousands of people. It was a, it was a YouTube live 
Uh, so it was about repatriating Africa, and um, uh, two brothers were on there separately. Uh, brother Umar Johnson, whom I'm, whom I'm sure you heard that name before and heard him, and heard him speak probably. And uh, also another brother out of Brooklyn called uh, Q Butter. Um, so both of these guys have, have, well, Q Butter has a physical school. And uh, he, was, he was speaking about, you know, his, um, you know, his program and how it works and everything else. And, um, you know, that now is stretched outside of Brooklyn and they can, like, teach people remotely. But certain principles that are, that are, that are, um, uh, are very tangible. And then when I went to go check out his page, uh, he was kind of going at Brother Umar Johnson. Uh, saying that, well, you know, he kind of like downs our school, you know, out of competition, et cetera. And I was just thinking to myself, like, man, okay, this is my first time hearing about, you know, the brother Q Butter, but like I was really impressed by his presentation on that platform. And I've been following Dr. Umar Johnson for a while. And I'm just like, you know, why? They were both on the call? Uh, yes, but not at the same time. Okay. okay so they're both on there, but not at the same time. So like the moderator brought one on because it was an eight hour call. It was an eight hour call for Africa Day. It was special for Africa Day. So he had like, over like 50 speakers on like throughout the day okay um so it's very immersive um so uh when i went to cuba's page and saw him talking about dr umar it's kind of like well you know look i mean you know dr umar's pretty abrasive but you know he has good points on certain things and i'm just like why can't people like brothers come together on something especially on the same topic like you're both trying to do schools for black youth to grow why would we down each other? Do you do you do you come across that in your in your in your walk? In your journey? Go yeah. in, man. <laughs> Go no, in. It's, it's normal. It's 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 unfortunately normal. See see here here's my thing, and I I say this to a lot of folks. I say, look, if 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 you have a and, and I'm talking professionally now, if you have a problem with your brother or your sister's program. It's, you know, we, it's 2020. We have access to each other, right? If, 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 if there's some celebrity that you love, if, you, if, if, you, if, you, if you're passionate enough, you'll reach them too, even though they got layers of, of, of protection between you and them. If you really want them, you can get to them. So, so, so my thing is this. If you have a, a, a concern about somebody, and I'm not talking about Umar, so I, want, I mean, I'm, I'm just speaking generically now then call your brother, call your sister, and have that conversation so the public doesn't know that you're having it. They don't, because the public doesn't need to know that you're having it, right? It's, it's, I, now, I've been in that situation. I'm like, why, why, why did you just call me? Why, why, why are you putting this out here like this, right? So, so I, I can remember, like one time, here's an example. I, there was a couple of people that I that I knew via uh, Twitter, and you know when you do a conference and the people sitting there retweeting, well, as they or, or, or not no not only not retweeting but but re paraphrasing what you said. So you in a conference, you got thousands of people in the audience. The Twitter's going crazy. They paraphrasing. So somebody paraphrased something that I wrote, right? And it wasn't the way I said it. But I'm not reading that stuff. I'm just retweeting, right? So I retweeted something that misconstrued something I said. Somebody blasted me on Twitter. And I'm like, where is this coming from? I thought I said all the right thing. So then they, they, they showed me the post. I said, oh, that's not what I said. But by then, 
they had people jump on their bandwagon. Now, this is somebody that knew me virtually for at least 10 years, right? Was like, like, like was down with me, to, so, so to speak. And now you, you, now you participated in that when you could have DM me and said, this is what they said that you said, and you, you retweeted it. And we could have resolved that instead of me blocking this person, right? Forever. And the people that jumped on the bandwagon as well, right? So I'm saying that to say this. You, you will not find a video, an audio, a blog post of anybody that I may vehemently disagree with. You, you're not going to find it. Because, it. because if I agree, if I disagree with them that much that it's bugging me, then I'm simply going to reach out to them. If I know them, then, I, then, then that's easy. If I don't know them, it's easy to get to them. Easy. I'm, I'm, and, and I'll express it that way. And as far as the public is concerned, we on the same page, right? They, like, like there are people, watch this. There are people that say to me, they'll say, Kefele, man, you sure do shout out a lot of your colleagues, right? Like your competitors, they'll say. You, like I did here. I, I, I shouted out two authors today, right? Mm -hmm. They say, you sure do shout out a lot of people. I say, yeah, you know why? Because ain't neither one of them my competition. Because I don't have competition. I'm an educator. Since when do educators compete against one another? Right? So, 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 so therefore, if, if, if my colleague wrote a book, and I know my colleague is doing ex excellent work, why am I, why, why am I going to shy away from that and, and just put my book up? See, if, see it's, if, if, if I was on here, because these, these two authors know me, if I was on here and I, and I promoted my books and I did not promote their books, I'm going to be straight up with you. I don't care who sees this video. I ain't nothing but a fraud because I'm not about getting the material out. I'm only about getting my material out. Do you see the difference? Yes. See, so, so I'm saying... If as soon as Christine popped up, I say, hold up, y'all. As soon as Tovey popped up, I said, hold up, y'all. Let, let me shout them out. Right? See, and, if, and let's say one of them has something in there, one kosher, or they tweeted something, because there are people in the in the speaking world who know. They know me. Not these two, but other people. They know if they tweet something I don't like that I feel is detrimental to their career, I call them. My, my wife and my daughter right in this house right now, they know I told some dude off in, you know, in out of respect to say, get that crap off your page so that you're so that you don't destroy your career because you angry about something. Right. So I'm saying. But I didn't go on his thread publicly and say, yo, you need to get rid of this. I, we talk behind closed doors. So I'm saying I'm saying all that to say, going back to what you said about that, that, that YouTube video yesterday. I'm not going after nobody publicly, right? I am my brother's keeper, right? So I'm, 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 I'm going to treat it that way. We, we talk privately. I'll give you my two cents, and then it's up to you if you want to own those two pennies. If you don't want them, then throw them away. I just gave them to you, right? You throw them away if you don't want them, right? And that's, that, I think that's how we should all roll, mm -hmm. but unfortunately, we don't. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's so much I could say directly to what you said, but I'm not, right? <laughs> but but it's, it's just unfortunate that that's, you know, that's where it is with, with, with so many of us.
it was um thank you i think i thank you for that um addressing that uh in su such an eloquent and and, and highbrow kind of way because to me both of those guys are very knowledgeable and they can literally bring the culture together uh particularly for um uh the global black family you know because they're both speaking to uh you know something bigger than just you know black america you know it's it's it's, it's, it's like the pan-african mindset as well and you know one of them in particular is, talks about you know pan-africanism so much uh, the live stream is actually called Made in Africa. Made in Africa live stream. Yeah, um, okay. Yeah, so like that's real dope. And they put it, they put it on for, uh, you know, for Africa Day. And that leads me to the last thing that I May have. May 25. Uh, sorry? I said May 25. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, exactly. Um, that leads me to the last thing that I have for you, which is, which is um, uh, reaching out to, you know, to our global black family, like over there on the continent. Uh, like I said earlier, like the work that I'm doing over there, um, it's just so much smaller now. We have the tools to be able to do things. So unlike in like the 1920s, like Day of Garvey, or even like, you know, the 60s, um, you know, and 70s with, um, you know, Malcolm X, et cetera, um, you know, we're able to reach out to our brothers and sisters over there on the continent. Educationally, um, what, what, what advice would you give to black American educators that want to do either distance learning or physically going over there to uh, share their knowledge and kind of have a, you know, have a cooperative? Oh, I mean, if, if, if I was in position to do it, I'd do it. I, I say by all means, do it if that's something you want to do. But, but understand that it's, at some point you're going to have to learn the culture because it's going to be very different from what you may be accustomed to. But um, a, lot, a lot of folks get to go abroad and, and spend some time, like, 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 like uh, Brother Barry. And that's always, that's a good thing, you know, so um, by all means, make it happen. But, but let me say this to you, because I, I see folks starting to disappear. This is my newest book, The Assistant Principal 50. I just wrote it. It just, it came out May 11th. It sold out before it was printed. Um, it, it was just such a demand for it. So it was reprinted, um, about 10,000 copies. And it's, uh, it'll be back at Amazon tomorrow, uh, they say, they project and ASCD, my publisher. But I wrote this book because, in, in, because I, I, I believe firmly that the most misunderstood and underutilized position in education is the assistant principal. So I wrote this to transform the way that the assistant principal is being utilized by principals, assistant superintendents, and superintendents. So it's selling like hotcakes. It's number one on Amazon. And interestingly, <laughs> this was number two on Amazon this morning, but then I found out why. A study group emerged um, over the weekend, and this is the book they're using, and they just bought a whole slew of them, and it took it to number two. But this is an older book. But then this book, The Aspiring Principal 50, is for those folks who want to become principal um, or become assistant principal or who are new principals. I wrote this in 2019, and this is for them. So last thing I want to say, because you know, certainly visit my website at principalcafele.com. Dot com. You see the spelling of my name right there. But I started a class, an academy, um, that comes on Saturday. It's 18 consecutive Saturdays, which has been amazing. Um, I started it four weeks ago. We're in week five now, this coming Saturday, where more free game. I'm spending an hour every Saturday just talking to aspiring assistant principals, assistant principals, and then anybody else that wants to get this message 
where I'm just talking about effective assistant principal leadership and between the live audience and then the views that people see throughout the week, we're averaging about 30, 35,000 people watching these videos. So I put them on YouTube. They can watch them on Twitter in terms of the current one. I, I pin it. And, and if they scroll, they could see the one on Facebook or go to my albums folder. But between the live video and then the, um, and then the people that see the recording, man, you know, 30, 35,000 people a week. I'm, I'm proud of those numbers. And it's, all, it's, it's, it's new. And that's what sold this out because this accompanies the, 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 the we call it the virtual assistant principal leadership um, academy. So this accompanies it. So everybody that's been watching wants this book. So I'm anticipating that the second printing is going to sell out quick too, because there's so many people that want it. So, and that's a blessing. Those are good problems to have. So if you don't have a copy, go to amazon.com or go to principalcafele.com and get yourself a copy or barnesandnoble.com. And somebody told me they got a copy from Walmart. So Walmart, wherever education books are sold and follow me on Twitter at principalcafele and follow me, not friend me, but follow me on Facebook because I don't have any friend space unless somebody dropped me between the time I signed on here and now. Um, but you can always follow me because the follow numbers are unlimited. So you can follow me and then you can check out the video right on Facebook. It's 11 o'clock Eastern time. Again, 11 o'clock Eastern time every Saturday until August 29th. I will be sitting right here in this chair. I usually wear my Negro League jerseys. And I have on some Negro League jersey feeling that, feeling that fire as some of the best baseball players that ever ever lace them up and um and we'll be talking we'll be talking uh assistant principal leadership for a solid hour and uh your twitter as well did, did you did you give you twitter yeah at principal Cafele. i'm not on instagram just don't have time for all them platforms but uh twitter and facebook and you are heavy you are heavy on twitter brother i mean like in like yeah. thousands so i mean <laughs> that's, that's heavy enough and like we like twitter um because because it's like a micro blogging and like a conversation we can have in uh you know like a couple characters so i think i think that's better than just like you know posting pictures and uh the twerk twerk culture yeah yeah i mean i, I twitter man I, I i could write a book about what twitter has done for me oh please do please do yeah, I, I i don't need you know as far as the media uh, the, the promotion of what I do. I don't really, I don't need Facebook. Facebook is fun for me. I just, it's just, I call it my, 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 my fun platform, but Twitter, that's my business platform. That's the difference between the two for me. Uh, Heath, I would be, I would be remiss if I didn't do this one anecdote. I was supposed to do it a long time ago at the very beginning of the call when, uh, when I was in um, elementary school in Hempstead, New York, we had a principal called Mr. Curry. And uh, this particular principal cared so much for the kids that he renamed the school from, from uh, Jackson, Maine Elementary School to Jackson, Maine University. And the reason why he told our parents is that because he wanted the kids to understand that education doesn't stop at elementary. And like in my neighborhood, there weren't many people going to university. So to be able to even know what that word was at such a young age, like that's what really instilled strong principals and educators like yourself, like Keith, uh, to me from an early age um, as well as there's something else that he did that I thought you know it's quite you know it's quite forward thinking is that um, back then like you know like all the flashy sneakers like Jordans were like you know well in vogue I mean like they still are but um, you know kids in my neighborhood were like literally getting shot for these and like you know you know killed and hurt so uh, he said okay well everyone has to wear uniforms 
and just like did that, you know, decision across the board. And like, you know, next thing I knew, like everyone wore uniforms like the next day. And that was the happiest day of my life as, as an elementary kid, because I wasn't one of those that could afford Jordan. So I was getting the like, you know, sneakers from like the grocery store and what have you, my parents. So I was like, okay, cool. Now everybody's wearing uniforms. We're all the same. But just to have like those kind, those kind of decisions from like that high level, because as you, as you started off with the, principal of the administration understood where the kids are coming from. He understood what the kids needed. That's why he put those kinds of things in place. And only as I got older did I realize that was for our best interest. There you go. Absolutely. Fantastic. Absolutely. Wow. Wow. You gave us a lot of free game, brother. Um, you know, I've always felt that I, we were kindred spirits, man, from the first yes, time I heard you speak. And um, like I said, you pumped life into my career. And um, we're just happy to have you on this platform. Let me say to everybody here, I appreciate you. I've been reading, I've been trying to read most of those chats. I mean, those uh, comments in the chat. And um, I appreciate all of you. Somebody said, Kefele for president. <laughs> 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 I, whoever said that, I, I you know, I appreciate it. I, I, I'm not worthy, right? But I, I appreciate it. And, um, you know, just keep on doing what you guys are doing. And I'll see you in social media. And um, I'll see you in the winter, sir. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks a lot. We right, appreciate it. Appreciate the opportunity to you, Brother Heath, and you, Brother Marlon. Thank you, you, Brother. You, brother Sue. Thanks a lot. Yes, sir. Um, and just thank you guys so much for your support, and feel free to reach out at any time. All right? As yeah. we always say at this time, live global and prosper. Peace. Check us out on YouTube, Global Brothers Podcast, and please subscribe and share and, you know, continue to support, you know, good yeah, content. Thanks, everybody.